And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Hang on a minute. Who put you in charge? And who the hell are you anyway? I'm the Doctor. I'm a Time Lord. I'm from the planet Gallifrey, the constellation of Casterberus. I'm 903 years old, and I'm the man who's going to save your lives and all six billion people on the planet below. You got a problem with that? No. In that case... Allons-y! Would you like a jelly baby? Doctor Who show on the internet. 
hosted by the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You figure out, you can figure out the validity of that last statement for yourselves. My name's Sean Ingle, and this time out of the show, we're breaking format a little bit. Oh, to be certain, there will be discussion of Doctor Who, but rather than talking about a, a specific era or episode, today we're going to be talking about the topic of fandom. Olden days when E I was just a lad, to the modern marketing powerhouse that powers the Whovians of today. And joining me for the show today are two members of the Who True Freaks family. First up, the host of the Firestorm Fan Blog over at FirestormFan.com, and co-host of the Fire and Water Podcast with the irascible Rob Kelly, ladies and gentlemen, and it is Shag. The irredeemable Shag. Absolutely. And also, we have the person who dreamt up this whole little shindig, the lovely lady of Two True Freaks family, and host of Hope of All Trades, Miss Hope Mullinax. Hey, Hope. Hi, you guys. Hi. Cool. What's and, up? And What's up? I'm with, not talking to you. <laughs> and it begins. And <laughs> with introductions out of the way, I am going to hand the virtual podium over to you, Hope. Hi, guys. Okay, so the reason I kind of wanted to do an episode about talking about the Doctor Who fandom is on my own show, one of my favorite things to do is to look at fandoms as a whole because fandoms really do dictate and affect shows how they're running now. I mean, because without fans, there wouldn't be any shows, there wouldn't be movies, comics, books, so on and so forth. So the, it's interesting with, though, with Doctor Who because it's over 50 years old, it's really evolved over time, you know? It, we've had it since before the internet, and now we've had it since the internet. And with the evolution of the internet, with Doctor Who being so prominent on BBC America, there's exposure through the printed word, and there's conventions. The fandom has evolved from old Who to new Who, and now it's also a mix of the two. So I wanted to take a look at how it's evolved over the years and what it is today. Sounds good. Okay. <laughs> well, okay. I was waiting for Shag to jump in because usually he's the one who is the most vocal on this stuff. So. <laughs> I'm trying to be respectful. It's a new thing I'm trying out. Well, My therapist said I should try it. Um, well, if we, want to start off with, if, if we want to start off with the olden days, I guess that's why you turned it over to me, the old fogey here, for old Who fandom. Um, you know, Doctor Who started obviously in 1963 and immediately was a, a huge hit. And there's been, you know, varying forms of fandom for th- since it began. In the early 1960s, you know, there was what they called Dalek Mania, which was absolutely crazy. Um, but as time went on, as you get to the 1980s, and that's that's what I'd like to talk more about is because the show came back, when it came back in 2005, that's sort of when you got the transition from old who to new who. Um, by, when the show went off the air in 89, and then up to 2005, I mean, Doctor Who fandom was, was a really small slice of nerdom. You know, it was a niche. A lot of people... No Star Trek, Star Wars, Battlestar Galactica, Next Generation, all that. And those were mainstream network exposure. But Doctor Who was still that thing that was on PBS. Um, that you may or may not catch. Right. And if you did, you usually thought, what is this low-budget piece of crap? Yeah, the, and thing, so, the thing about that being on PBS is PBS never really had a set uh, format. You know, it, they, it, And you could go from one state to another and they would be showing different PBS uh, shows at different times. It wasn't like your regular network TV like ABC, NBC, and CBS where they'd have a set format and time. So many times you were really lucky if you got to catch Doctor Who on PBS. So I understand it, it, trying to find it itself is a problem there. Now, was, to that be fair, guys, was that you guys' first exposure to Doctor Who was on PBS? Yes. 
Oh yeah, absolutely. I watched it. I thought it was a cheap college-made show. Uh, it was Genesis <laughs> and the Daleks, and I thought it was a ripoff of Star Wars. I thought the Daleks were stormtroopers, and Davros is Vader, and you know Harry and the Doctor were supposed to be Luke and Han, and Leia was Sarah Jane. It was just a mess for me. Uh, I didn't realize till Hand of Fear what I was watching. Now, to be fair, like Andy Leyland's probably yelling at his Zoom right now. Sorry, we're right now we're strictly speaking about Phantom in the United States, which is not fair. It, there is it is an inter- international show. But let's face it, the three of us, we're from the United States. That's what we know. So that's basically where we're, we're going to be talking about primarily. That's why we're talking about all this PBS nonsense. All those British people are like, what, what? What's PBS? You know, um, that it's was... It's a public broadcasting system here in America, and they're usually locally run. Yes. So, um, and I realize that I'm actually reading notes, somebody else's notes that uh, I didn't type. So I'm sorry for stealing whoever's notes these were. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so... You know, in the hierarchy of nerdum, at least over here in the States, Doctor Who was pretty low. I mean, like Star Trek fans, you know, were people always make fun of Star Trek fans. But the fact is, if you were a Star Trek fan, you always knew you weren't at the bottom of the rung because Doctor Who fans were even lower than you. I mean, nobody, there's nothing like being looked down upon by a bunch of overweight middle-aged guys wearing rubber Klingon headpieces to cover their bald spot carrying foam batlets. It's just embarrassing. <laughs> it really is. So, I... Uh, so it wasn't until New Who and the explosion of fandom that it became more acceptably a Doctor Who fan. A lot of Doctor Who fans were in the closet. I was. I didn't, you know, broadcast it. I was. I wasn't embarrassed, but I knew if it came up in conversation, I was going to get picked on. You know, everyone felt they were better than us. Nowadays, we just make fun of furries, so it's okay. We're, on, you know, someone's <laughs> lower than us. All right. Um, all kidding aside. Old Who fandom was very active, and I personally believe, I'm going to put this out there, I think Old Who fandom was responsible for keeping the show alive during the, what's called the Wilderness Years, which is 1989 to 2005. And if you want to hear more about the Wilderness Years, check out our older Wilderness Years episode of Who True Freaks that Shag and you did it with someone else. Stephen Lacey posted back in October 2013, so yeah. thank you it, for that. Very good plug. You're welcome. You're welcome. It was a really great episode because I actually don't know a lot about the Wilderness Shoes, and you guys did a lot of great coverage in that time period, and I learned a lot, so I wanted to throw it out there. Well, thank you. I'm going to give, like, I'm gonna, what's that? I hate you, Shag. Oh, I hate you, too. Um, <laughs> I'm going to give, like, a 15-second sort of recap of that to some extent. So, basically, wh- where I feel like fandom, uh, I'm sorry, where, the, where Doctor Who was kept alive by the fans was through during those Wilderness Years. In 1991, two years after the show ended, BBC granted the license to Virgin to publish original novels, Doctor Who fiction. There was The New Adventures and The Missing Adventures. Now, the f- here's where it gets important. The fourth book was written by a fan who had become a writer. The first three were established writers. They were known science fiction and Doctor Who writers. This, again, the fourth one was a fan, and his name was Paul Cornell. You might have heard of him. He went on to write some of the TV episodes of New Who. He wrote Human Nature, Family of Blood, that two-parter. He adapted one of his own novels called Father's Day, the one with uh, Rose, me, your father. Um, his first novel was very popular, and it opened the doors to other fans to write Doctor Who novels. And actually, the, what kind of clued me into this was when I was at Gallifrey One recently, Gary Russell pointed that out. He pointed out that Paul Cornell opened the door for fans to tra- make that transition from being fans to being actual contributors to the Doctor Who mythos. So other people, other fans, quote-unquote fans that wrote novels for Doctor Who, you might know, heard of a couple of these folks. Uh, Russell T. Davies wrote a Doctor Who novel back then during the Wilderness Years. Stephen Moffat wrote a short story. Uh, Mark Gaddis, or you say Gaddis or Gaddis? Gaddis. Gaddis. His very first published work was a Doctor Who book. 
So oh. you Sherlock fans have Doctor Who to thank for that. Um, Gareth Roberts, Gary Russell, all these folks have gone on to write for Doctor Who, work for the Doctor Who show. Now, in 1986, the book license reverted from Virgin back to BBC. And um, But the importance of this, though, is they started with one book a month in 1991. By 1994, they were consistently putting out two Doctor Who books a month. I mean, that's that's an investment of time and money that people were willing to do in, in an era where there was no show. And it kept going, and it kept the momentum going. Obviously, there was also Big Finish, if you're familiar with them. They do all the audio adaptions. Folks involved with starting that was Nick Briggs. He's now the voice of the Daleks on the show. Again, Gary Russell, I mentioned them. They pulled in writers uh, like Rob Sherman, who went on to write the first Dalek episode. Um, in fact, David Tennant's first work on a Doctor Who production was for Big Finish. So, I mean, these fans were the ones who were making new Who during the wilderness years, and then they all went on to create the new show. So what I guess what I'm trying to say is, without those fans creating new Who during the wilderness years, I don't know that we'd have new Who as we know it now. It would have come back in some form or another, another but it might have just been some corporate exec who thought it was time to bring it back and didn't have his heart into it, you know? It's the fans that brought Doctor Who back. Now, there was other licensed products I should mention. I mean, there's a lot of audio adventures out there featuring crinoids and zygons. There were some video productions with Autons and the Brigadier. And hey, check this out, Hope. Liz Shaw, which was a, a third Doctor companion, did a series called Probe, and it was done by Mark Gaddis. It was his very first television scripts. Again, if it weren't for Doctor Who, you'd have no Sherlock. Um, I think she just passed out. No. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the novels and Big Finish and all these continued publications, along with Doctor Who magazine, helped to demonstrate to the BBC there was still support and merchandising for Doctor Who. So, I th- again, that's my that's my what I postulate that I think the fans are what kept it alive and are the reason Doctor Who is so popular now. Yeah, I can I can agree with Shag on that. I think Doctor Who after since it was such a limited series and very niche. I mean, it was the niche of these shows. You would have everyone, like you said who knew stuff about Star Trek. Who, there were Star Wars toys all around. Now, granted, in the UK, there might have been uh, you know, more Dalek merchandise than there were over here. But if you were... If you could find anything close to Doctor Who merchandise, probably what you might find would be a knitting pattern for <laughs> the Tom Baker scarf, which you might be able to get if you donated to a PBS pledge drive. And I think... That would be the only sort of recognizable Doctor Who piece of memorabilia you could find. I think there. I think PBS had tote bags too. Oh yeah, they might have had Doctor <laughs> Who tote bags, but you had to pay a hundred and twenty dollars if you want to get that. Totally, bastard. But uh, yeah, Doctor Who was one of these things that you could find people if you if you were around uh, and you were kind of a geeky person around when Shag and I were kids you could find people who were into Star Wars or Star Trek or even Battlestar Galactica or you know if you were a little older than that you know Planet of the Apes or the Twilight Zone or stuff like that all of these fandoms you know were really popular if you found someone who was knowledgeable about Doctor Who and had a love for it and enjoyed the varieties of shows especially here in the States you were you found a very special person because it was it was really difficult to find people who were willing to talk or willing to be proclaimed that they were fans of Doctor Who. Every once in a while, you know, back in the burgeoning days of the internet, I mentioned this in my post that there were some people who would discuss them and discuss shows of Doctor Who on bulletin board systems. <laughs> that was that was like uh, the sort of old time Facebook chat rooms where 
back in the old days when it, when you had to dial up to get to an internet server, people would have individual servers which would only take one person at a time dialing them up. And you could go in there and read the post and type in your post. And maybe if you had a fast, a fast modem, like a 9600 baud modem, you could actually type them within, oh, about 30 minutes. But yeah, it at the time, at the time when we were kids, Doctor Who fandom was in its infancy. And I agree. Had it not been after the uh, after the ending of the show in 89 with uh, Sylvester McCoy, if it were not for the Big Finish audio and the, the books put out by the BBC and for that, Doctor Who probably wouldn't have seen the resurgence that it did in 2005. I gotta say, I'm glad you explained what BBS was, because I saw that in notes, and I had no idea what it was. <laughs> I remember, I actually would go on, uh, I think it was Internet Relay Chat? This is about 1996, 97, mm-hmm. probably. Ooh, I was What's that? I was little, I was like seven. Thanks for that. You're uh, welcome. <laughs> and we'd chat with people about Doctor Who, and I actually made a, I made a friend! I, uh, I actually genuinely was going back and forth with this one guy and found out that we both lived in the same town. We're like, oh my gosh, two Doctor Who fans in the same town? How is that even possible? <laughs> and we got together and hung out. We're still friends all these years later. So, crazy. <laughs> uh, like I said, I'm I, I'm a bit older than you, and the bulletin board systems were, like I said, they were someone would put oh, up... Yeah, I'm, very, I remember them. I just didn't have access to them. Yeah, a very archaic uh, website that was all just text, and maybe if you know they had... Uh, a section of it, you know, they would have uh, they would have dirty pictures, which would take you know like uh, three and a half hours to download half of a <laughs> naked woman picture. So there you go. Yeah, we used to run our games off tape drives that uh, uh-huh. guys would get for us off BBSs. Oh dear God, I remember tape drives. That, oh yeah, that's oh, yeah. One of the saddest things. Ever. We're going it, off topic, aren't we? Sorry, well, just, isn't that what they use at the Pharos Project? There you go. <laughs> See, brought it right back. There you go. Legopolis <laughs> reference. Hey, I'm enjoying this. I'm I, I love history, so. Oh, ah! bitch. Uh, <laughs> bitch. Wow. <laughs> no, seriously, I was like this close to being a history major, so I love history. It's not history, it's my life. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, okay. So... I found out that uh, Pokemon had it was, this year is 20 years old, and that just makes me feel really old because it's under like the vintage cartoons part of Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> so, you are technically a relic. I am. I was like, oh my god, I, that's like one of my favorite things, and I can't believe it's 20 years old, and Ash Ketchum is still apparently 10 years old on that show. It's the longest year of his life. Anyway. Alright, since I have no interest in Pokemon, and I'm your nemesis, I'm going to move forward. Uh, the that's next good. topic, we started. To, we, we moved past old Who fandom. And, and we, we talk tra- about new Who fandom! And the first right. line in our notes, I think, sums it all up, that apparently everyone on Earth is now a Doctor Who fan. Mm-hmm. I think, um, do we should we give a little bit of history, or is everybody on Earth a Doctor Who fandom enough to give the history of well, this? Go ahead, Hope. Go for it. Yeah. Um. When it came back in two thousand five, they kind of shifted the series around. It started going. Um. The series usually consists about thirteen forty five minute episodes, and they a lot of times they're self contained, and then sometimes they have a lot of two parters, and they always have Christmas episodes, which are super fun. But and then sometimes every once in a while. They go over and they'll have like special episodes that are 60 minutes or longer. I know the 11th hour and Journey's End were one. And as in early classic era, each episode, whether it's a standalone or a part of a larger story, has its own title. Um, unlike, and, and that mirrors the early classic era, correct? 
Yeah, the earliest Hartnells, each episode had its own title. That's true. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, it, it came about and it was brought back by Russell T. Davis, and then now it's being run by Stephen Moffat. And it's just, it's so much fun. It's really brought in this kind of new kind of, it, it brought a generation Doctor Who. And I know a lot of people is like, old Who versus new Who, but I, I don't really think that should matter because it's all Doctor Who. And I actually made a note about that. But let's talk about how everyone on Earth is a Doctor Who fandom and why this is. I, I think the big reason is the internet. Like, that really is the reason. Uh, I think it's the show. I think the internet has built the fandom, and it helps feed it. But I, I, I think even without the internet, the show would still be a success. I mean, it's mm. it's a well-constructed show. I'll give you an example. My wife, who is a complete non-geek, I mean, just not interested in geeky stuff at all. The closest she ever got was she read the Twilight books. And um, she, when Doctor Who came back, you know, I, I was like, oh, honey, look, it's Doctor Who, it's coming, oh, my God, oh, it's freaking out and all this, and... She's like, is that that little show you watch on the VHS tapes? I'm like, yes, honey, it's the little show I watch on the VHS tapes. It's coming back. Thank you. And um, <laughs> I convinced her to watch a few episodes in the first season, and she kind of got into it, and then it built and built and built. By the time we watched um, – by I'm sorry, by the time we got to the second season and Doomsday aired, which is the one where Rose goes, uh, I mean, she was bawling in tears. And that is what what – kept bringing her back to the show prior you know prior to doomsday was the dr rose relationship and i think the dr rose relationship whether you love it or hate it is what made the show a success the first two years i think that brought in a lot of non-sci-fi fans i think it brought in a lot of people who were interested in the drama between the two characters and it built and it built and i, I honestly I attribute that to a huge part of the success of the show and I, I think okay go I, ahead Al. i was just uh t- kind of going off shag and I, I think it does not only with Rose and the Doctor kind of bringing this kind of people who's not used to the sci-fi genre because I I've, I've always been more fantasy um, than I have been, ever been sci-fi but it really exposed me to the sci-fi genre but it also can bring in old people old sci-fi fans as well like my mom was raised a Trekkie like she loves Star Trek and so when I showed her Doctor Who she just ate it up and so um, we don't live in the same state anymore so, like, whenever a new episode comes on, like, we're calling each other up to talk about it. I mean, it, it's great for both old fans and new fans, and she's started getting into some of the classic who now. Well, really? That's, that's mm-hmm. great, because one of the things I think has benefited the new show uh, over the old show is not only the fact that there's more... The, the stories are... Well, I'm not going to say they're better, but they have a different feel to them. But specifically for me, the production value for the shows have just... <laughs> gone up a lot even if you look even if you look at the 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 latest of the the shows with uh sylvester mccoy even the production values on some of them was really pretty sketchy the bbc put a lot of money and a lot of talent in making these shows and they look good they look very cinematic the special effects are really impressive for television i mean they're up there with i would i would put them up there with star trek the next generation or, or or even shows like Enterprise, which I think would be almost contemporary to that. So not only do they have a good story and a good they've got a good catch for a lot of female audiences with the uh, with the love story that they kind of had between Rose and the Doctor, but you know, they've also got the production value that the earlier shows didn't have. It's it's kind of in a way a lot like the difference between Star Trek the original series and Star Trek the Next Generation. They had a lot more characterization 
uh, and sometimes better stories, but also a bigger budget for production value. And I think that benefits the new Who a lot. And I think the how they've tackled some of the story writing, um, bringing in like older villains like the Cybermen, the Daleks, and stuff like that, and how they've approached it in New Who makes it kind of work better now. Because I know a lot of people that I've talked to um, in my store, they talk about how like the Daleks aren't really scary in the old series. Because if you look at them, they're trash cans with circles on them and whisks and a plunger. Like, they just look like a ridiculous creature. But what I really like about the Daleks in New Who, they're a lot more psychological to me. Like, they really nitpick at the Doctor's brains. Like, one of my favorite... Uh, lines by them is in I think it was Asylum and the doctor was talking about them he's like you know uh, you're you're always, you think hatred is beautiful and anger is beautiful and and you want to destroy this now and the Dalek said something like that's why we haven't destroyed you yet and so I really like how they've approached like the Cybermen and the Daleks this time around that they're a little bit more psych- uh, psychological and that's what makes them scary now because you know we didn't have Daleks when I was a kid and um, they weren't that, like, scary kind of monster of the week. And they brought in other villains, too, like the Weeping Angels. I mean, their first use was incredibly scary. Blink still scares the pants off me. Oh, yeah. But until they were really overused, but still. <laughs> it's it's the Klingon effect. It happens that Star, yeah, Trek, well, to, Star Trek introduces a cool villain, and then after a while they use him too much, and they stop being scary. So it's well, uh, also they still funny. have their moments. Every once in a while, like, in, in the 50th, like, when the angel came out of snow, I was just like, oh, fuck. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's that's the thing you'll get in any genre. You'll get that. That's why in comic books, you know, in recent recent times, they shelved the Joker in the Batman books for almost a year because they thought he was way overused. And they, you know, they brought him back recently in Death of the Family and or Death of the Family, and it turned him really creepy. So sometimes when you overuse these characters, they can get quite diluted. And I can see, uh, I, I can, I think, I think the benefit that the Daleks had was that excellent episode in the first season of Dalek, which just showed how badass a Dalek could be against, mm. you know, of people who thought that they would have overwhelming force to defeat it. So, yeah. But then you get Daleks in Manhattan. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh. uh, so, production values, they've certainly benefited from that. Um, the writing, like, like you said, Sean, I don't necessarily want to say the writing is better. But the it's, writing is very – but it's fair to say – because some of the old episodes, the concepts in there are great. But I would mm-hmm. say the new show benefits from the writing being extraordinarily contemporary, and which means a lot of witty banter, very sharp. Also the pace. Between the, base, the pace and the contemporary contemporarily written, I think that really benefits the show, and it makes it very hip and very modern. Mm-hmm. And I, I know people have commented on this on other shows that we've done that Russell T. Davies has – kind of wanted to sort of buffy eyes yeah doctor who universe which in some ways is has its good points and bad points its good points is that makes it more contemporary it makes people uh, makes gets more people into it but then yes it does seem sort of derivative and does sort of have kind of that what i like to feel that sort of joss whedon feel to it which isn't necessarily a bad thing but it does it does just feel sometimes kind of derivative yeah, Josh, Josh, I love him, but he does have his strong points and his weak points. And I sometimes I feel like when he's trying to be like really too campy, um, it it can really make weaken his writing instead of when he just goes just you know for the emotion and the character development. That's when he really shines, and that's how I feel about Doctor Who as well. Because there are sometimes that they really really try to be like really witty and bantery and campy, and sometimes it just takes away from the actual show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and. 
real quick, another reason I think it appeals to women, and here's where I piss off hope, um, besides the romance factor and just being a sharply written show, there is something about, I don't know what it's called, I'm sure there's a psychological term for it, I'll call it the, the princess fact, factor, which is where a lot of young women dream about being taken away and, and going, you know, they, when they're young, they they wanted to find out they're really a princess and they don't really belong to these parents. I'm sure you've all heard that sort of idea before that young girls have. Oh, yeah. Um, so here's the idea where the, this man, this magical, mythical man, comes and takes you into a fantasy world, picks you up and whisks you away, and it's always fun and adventurous. And I think that may be part of the reason that it appeals to, to young women as well. No, that doesn't piss me off at all. That's actually a Damn, strong... Damn, Yeah, that's actually a strong literary trope, and that's one thing that I think that really appeals to Doctor Who, and that's that's something that I like about it. Um, I'm always really kind of timid to bring up how I like Rose, and I, like the reason why I like Rose, and like, like Martha, and Donna, and Amy, is they're all really just normal people. You know, they have normal lives, they have normal jobs, uh, Amy's a little sketchy, but in the beginning, but um, <laughs> they all have these normal jobs, but the, it's because of the Doctor, he shows them that anybody can be extraordinary. Like, one of my favorite lines is an Eccleston line, when he tells the bride, uh, who says that you're not important. And that's one thing I've always liked about Doctor Who, is that you don't have to be the Doctor. You don't have to be, you know, this, like, big, great being to be an extraordinary person. And sometimes it's just finding extraordinary people in everyday life. I mean, there's just, like, little things, like, you know, you could go out and invent something great, or you could go out and help people, or if you just impact one person in your entire life, you were extraordinary to that one person. And that's something I've always liked, so I, I bet it was making me mad at all, because that is a, a strong literary trope. Well, and also it doesn't hurt the, to the fact that, especially in the new series of Doctor Who, they've gotten, in my opinion far more handsome and comely people to play the doctor i mean mcgann is sexy okay all right if you take mcgann out of the out of the classic stuff you've got baker who's got crazy hair you've got colin baker you know peter davidson peter davidson is handsome he's handsome he's handsome but i i wouldn't see him you know making making women swoon swoon eccleston especially tenant and even matt smith are the kind of characters or the kind of faces that that uh, that I would think that you know would get fangirls to go sort of gaga over it. So I think I think the casting of the characters for the Doctor has definitely uh, impacted the fandom quite a bit. And that's now, before, actually before something. Someone, before someone tries to say the same thing about the companions, there is a stretch of casting hot women as companions going all the way back to the first Doctor. So, oh, yes. There's nothing new there. Although I will say, I think they've reached a new pinnacle of smoke and hotness with Jenna Coleman. Um, um, it, I can't disagree with you it's on It's unnatural how attractive that woman is. It's, I, it's bizarre. I have to roll with Amy on that one. I think she, like, while I think Jenna is really pretty, I absolutely just have always thought that Karen Gillan is just amazingly drop dead gorgeous. I would say, but I also totally have horrible thing. We're, we're totally fanning here. I would say I'm more attracted to Karen Gillan, but I would say Jenna Coleman's prettier if that makes any more sense. Like the whole package, Karen's got the whole package. It's, anyway, sorry. <laughs> it's, it's, your, it's the it's the whole red thing going. We understand. Yeah, Jack. yeah. I'm, I'm married to a redhead. I'm, I've got a weakness. I have <laughs> a weakness, the, redheads too. But Though the, before, oh, sorry, Sean. I was going to say, but the thing is, even with the the female characters, both in classic Who and New Who, none of them really. Well, I would say the majority of them 
have been very competent and intelligent characters. They're not the sort of, in general, they're not the screamy sort of, oh, help me, save me, Doctor. You look like characters like Sarah Jane. And then you come to the classic, you know, the classic with Rose and Martha and especially Donna. These are characters who are whip smart on their own, who just travel with the Doctor, not expecting them to save them all the time, but travel with them to be a companion to them. And I like the fact that we've got strong female characters on what would, you know, a sci-fi show, which is normally appealing to uh, male viewers or the male fandom. To be now, honest, I'm... I think they saved Rory more than they saved all the girls combined. From where he started originally, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Now, so let me... Before, wait, we, wait. before we really jump into the companions, though, because I really wanted to make this point when we were still talking about the hotness of the Doctors. Okay. One thing that's, like, <laughs> I think that might um, really kind of hurt Doctor Who recently is it's really shallow, and I've started noticing this in the fans that come to my store. A lot of people are really upset that Peter Capaldi is older and that they want that route. And it's it's incredibly shallow, and a lot of people aren't even giving him a chance because they're just taking him at face value. And I think that's a really... I don't want to say a huge problem, but I do think it's going to kind of hurt numbers and ratings in at least the first year until people get used to Capaldi. The question is, will he have a second year? Um, I would say, this is jumping ahead a little bit, but the the, the segment that's going to take the biggest hit by Capaldi's casting is Tumblr. Uh, because every time I go to Tumblr and look up Doctor Who, it's just a bunch of people swooning over the, do- you know, the Doctor. Oh, 10, 11, he's so dreamy. And, um... So I would say they're going to take a hit, but you don't follow the people I follow. It's a lot of people I follow are like really they they are making fun of one of the roles that I don't want to say making fun of, but they keep bringing up one of the roles that Capaldi used where he swore a lot. So yeah. they've been putting him with Donna, and it's just like, Doctor, what's going on? What's the fucking fuckity fuck dialect fucking fuckers? <laughs> <laughs> and so like they're really latching onto that, and a lot of Capaldi is comedic background. So That's great. I guess you're lo- not looking at the people that I follow, but I also Probably only true. follow cool people. Because uh, I'm cool. Wow. So you don't follow me, but okay. See, no, um, I don't. Do you have Tumblr? For Firestorm fan, yeah. Ah! <laughs> I'm all over the I'm all over the interwebs. I know. Anyways, I just found out you were on Twitter, and I was so excited. <laughs> I'm on Instagram, Twitter, Google Plus, Facebook. I'm on all of it. Yeah, I, 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 I do not I do not have a Pinterest, nor do I have a Vine or Snapchat. Terribly sorry. <laughs> I need to. Uh, that I I just realized I'm probably following you on like three or four social medias but you do have to know your enemies better than your friends <laughs> there you go all right I have, to, I have to go back to this companion thing sean all right good. yes were you saying that the original series had strong female lead companions okay. or just okay no i'm saying that the original series had some strong you know female companions some hey, you. Hey, yes. you you know now, I, I love sarah. I'm, I'm talking sarah jane i now, mean I, she's the epitome in my opinion but sh- here's the do you, thing. Do you consider it to be the exception to the rule? No, hold on. I love Sarah Jane. I will kill a man to support Liz Slade, okay? She, that, that's how much I love that word. However, most of her job for Doctor Who was to fall down and hurt her ankle. <laughs> it really, I mean, her job was to, whatever the Doctor wanted to do, she would do it because that was her best friend. She, she didn't contribute as often as we all like to think she did. Now, obviously, with the Sarah Jane Adventures and things like that, she absolutely did. But she was she was a, like the world's best best friend. But she didn't she wasn't always a strong character. She was sometimes, okay. not always though. Now, I would say you you put your Tegan Javanka, no matter how annoying she may have been, she was a very strong character. You put your Ace 
in there. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've heard many times uh, people say that Ace is the reason that Rose happened. Because I, I could see that. Now explain Ace, that for me, because I'm not familiar with all two. Ace was played by an actress named Sophie Aldridge. She was a teenager, probably supposed to be about the age 18, maybe. And she was sort of a badass. She carried around an explosive. She carried around explosives in her backpack called Nitro Nine. She like would kill cyber ah! slingshot and gold, slingshot and gold coins. Mm-hmm. She was a total <laughs> badass. She she didn't take any gruff off the doctor. She called him professor all the time, and she was very very cool. And then there were moments where she would dress up and she would be very very pretty too. So she she was sort of almost a prototype for what Rose was to become. Yeah, she was kind of. I want to say she was kind of that 80s new wave, almost punkish type character. That's kind of what I got from her from the from the amount of shows that I've seen with Ace. So, mm-hmm. yeah. About five years too late. But yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I never, never claimed that Doctor Who was ahead of its time on the uh, pop culture. So That's true. That's true. So, um, so, yeah, there were some strong characters and all I would say all of the characters had their moments. You know, like there were certain times where their characters would really influence the story and be critical. But on the whole, they weren't as strong as they are with New Who. You've got a lot of strong characters, a lot of characters that save the day, a lot of the characters that save the Doctor, not just in the adventure, but keep him sane. Um, I, th- I think there's a lot to be said for how they developed companions in recent series. And, and I know I'm, I'm going to get hate mail about the Sarah Jane stuff. Oh. And it's not even like my like main companions. It's also just like sometimes like the one-off minor companion of the week. Like I always think of the the hostess in Midnight. You know, no one knew her name, but she saved the day. I mean, it's yeah. a lot. A lot of times, they have these like really strong characters that you can and, and like. Oh, what's the episode? It was. It's the very second episode of Eccleston. It's end of the world. End of the world. Yeah. Yeah. There's like the little plumber lady, and yep. she's like the an plumber, plumber lady. She was cool. She was so cool, but like you know, that's something that someone can really connect with. Like she's a blue collar worker working this job, and like. They, so even though she's a blue lady that's an alien, they really write these uh, these characters that people can connect with. And that was actually one of my favorite Rose moments, because this is Rose's first adventure, and she takes the time to talk to this woman and to get to know this woman. And that's what makes it more impactful when she actually gets killed in that episode. End of the World is so good. It so really good. Is. I hate that I, uh... I've only seen it, like, twice. <laughs> there was a character that I was convinced was going to join the, show, the, the TARDIS, um... It was the Matt Smith episode where they were in the hotel, Rory and oh, Amy. Yeah. Um, yeah. She, she was a... Uh, the Muslim chick? Yeah. I wanted I her to con- join so bad. I was convinced she was joining the show. I was like, oh, she's cool. She's got her crap together. She's smart. She, Oh, she's good. You know, and, and nope, didn't happen. But. Oh, God. Now, so. I do want to ask a question before we start kind of moving on. Um, something that I've always noticed in fandoms is when you have like an old like group of fans and then you have an influence and an influx of new fans um sometimes there's animosity with these new people who come in and it's kind of like old people versus new people and it's like kind of a clash of different ideas and ideals but i've never really understood that because like doesn't that mean that the show can keep going and also it's to me an influence that you have these people who can create new theories new ideas fan art fan fiction and the and to me, new does not always equal bad. But what are you guys' thoughts on that? Like as being, you know, fans of old who, and you see this influx of all these new fans. Go ahead. Sean. Oh, come on! I talk too much. You go, Sean. Okay. Well, I'm gonna say that I've 
I've never really gotten into the idea of old fans versus new fans. If you like what's going on in the current times and it's it's enjoyable to you, that's great. Even if, uh, but the thing is, I think the thing that Who benefits from is the fact that the new shows are just as good and just as engaging as the old shows. There's a different feel to them. But essentially, it's the same sort of idea. It's a guy traveling in space, getting into adventures with with his companions. That's kind of the, like Shag likes to say, the 10,000-foot view of it or whatever. (laughs) So there's not that much that's changed, like I said, other than it's gotten a bigger budget. It's the same thing that that I felt back uh, in the time when Star Trek The Next Generation came on. And I hate having to come back to that, but that's one of the things I know a lot of. I was railing against Star Trek The Next Generation when it first came out because I was like, oh, the, these new people, this bald French guy on the Enterprise, and there's a Klingon on there. I hate this. This is going to be horrible. But then I started watching the show, and I was like, it's really good. And I think Who and Doctor Who fandom, has have, the old Who fans have accepted the new Who, and they're willing to you know, meld that into their old ideals and the old episodes and they're willing to accept it far more than I think a lot of other genres have because I know there's a lot of negative feelings with the uh, revamp of Star Trek, uh, the J.J. Abrams version. A lot of people have a lot of negative feelings with the revamp of comic books, especially uh, the new 52s type stuff, uh, the new Superman movies. So there's always this sort of animosity and I think Doctor Who hasn't garnered that with its fandom. You know what I think's helped is the fact that Doctor Who, since 1966, has always been about change. Mm-hmm. You know, ever mm-hmm. since the first regeneration, you get a whole new show every few years, and I think that made it a little easier to accept. Now, there are certainly some people that put their foot down and refuse to accept the new show, and they will die in their anorak in their parents' basements, and that's fine. <laughs> um, but the rest of us, you know. Like you brought up, Sean, it, it's the battle of Trekker versus Trekkie. Remember that? That was Trekkies were classic series fans. Trekkers mm-hmm. were next gen fans, and oh, they oh, hated yes. each other. Oh, they didn't get along. Yeah, we don't have that, which is really nice. Um, there is some weird things. I mean, I'll tell you. You know, like I would say, having in the wilderness years, reading all the books, reading the comics, reading all all that the audios or listening to audios, all that, I felt like I knew everything about Doctor Who. I was I was getting every piece of New Who at that time, and I felt like you know if you want to put egos to it, like a big fish in a small pond. It's like oh, I know all of Doctor Who. Look at me, and then all of a sudden, 2005 comes along, and those people who were big fish in a small pond are suddenly small fish in a big pond. You know, Doctor Who fandom is everywhere. There's no way you can keep up with everything nowadays. There's just so much stuff, and it's it's sort of weird to go from being really hardcore plugged in on in a fandom. To suddenly you, you simply can't, and you know it's, it's it's not your father's Oldsmobile anymore. You know it's it's a it's a new world, and and I think some people have a hard time with that. Some people have a hard time being left behind. I you think know? there are some people who also just really like how it felt very exclusive. It almost felt like Doctor Who was kind of like an exclusive club that only so many people. Mm. It's kind of it's that elitist kind of feel. Yeah. Like I I always hate those Star Wars fans that like know every single working part on the Millennium Falcon and if you don't know every single working part on the Millennium Falcon you're not a real Star Wars fan. And well, God not. forbid <laughs> well and then God forbid if you're a girl and you're a Star Wars fan. Like I've always hated those douchebags. Right. And 
And so, like, I, there are some of those people out there who are like, well, I have watched old movies from the beginning, so therefore I'm better than everybody. I am. And boys... <laughs> See? Douchebag. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that. You're welcome. Um, hearts and stars and horseshoes and rainbows. Um... Because you're a girl. Mm. <laughs> I want some lucky charms now. I know, I, I realized I started singing that. <laughs> <laughs> They're magically delicious. Go on. Mm. And tricks are for kids. But I mean, I do think there, in some fandoms, there is that kind of elitist film. And I think that... I, what? <laughs> Nothing. I hope it no. comes, out, I I hope, hope it comes I, out in the edit. Oh, that better come. If not, I'm going to find a way to, to make it. <laughs> I want to hear what you just said, so if you have to silence me you in that said, one part. You said, Tricks are for kids and for horse. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, Lord. Sorry, we went off the rails. That's, oh, no, what sorry, right. pod- that's what you get for podcasting with two males. It's no, right. that's totally right. Um, but I think that's one thing I, I like most about the Doctor Who fandom, fandom is that there are so many girls. Um, sometimes it's hard in other fandoms to be a girl in a fandom. Um, I know for me personally, I constantly have to justify the fact that I read comic books and I know what I'm talking about when I'm reading comic books. Like, I had this guy come in and we had this shirt that had Iron Patriot on it, but it was the Iron Patriot from the Siege comics when Norman Osborn had the armor. Mm -hmm. And this guy just, like, would not believe that I knew that that was Green Goblin. So I spent five (laughs) minutes explaining how I had read Siege and that how he, like, at post-Civil War got Iron Man and Tony's um, armor and painted it Captain America colors and made the Bad Avengers. And this guy was just gobsmacked that I had the audacity to read comics. And so that's something I really do like about the New Who fandom is that there are so many women. I, I feel very comfortable being in this fandom while sometimes in other fandoms I don't feel comfortable. Like, sometimes, every once in a while, it, if not for her universe... Um, I think that made it a lot easier to be a Star Wars fan because you have that influence and you can show it. But like even then, like I've seen people be like, saw Natalie Portman wearing a Star Wars shirt, and someone commented, "Ooh, I bet she's never even watched Star Wars." And people were like, "Shut up, motherfucker! She was uh, uh, Amidala." <laughs> right? So, yeah, it so is. I mean, it I is think, sad that. No, go ahead. I know. I was just gonna finish. Like I, I really like the fact being in a new Who fandom. It, it makes it easier to be a girl in a fandom. Because yeah, sometimes it's really hard. That That is the one thing that I've seen a lot more, that, that the Who fandom seems to be more accepting of females being a part of it. I mean, you get in comic book fandom or Star Wars fandom, aside from what Ashley... It's not Eccleston? Or it's Ashley Eckstein. Ashley Eckstein, that's right, who does the Her Universe type stuff. It is hard to find people who are that much of a fan of like star wars and star trek and that and those genres don't seem to be as accepting as doctor who and i think it's probably there there's probably a lot of it you know to the writing and like i said with the new who the fact of the uh strong female characters that they present so it's more appealing to females to uh be a fan of this than it is to sort of the macho based shows especially the the new iteration of star trek which is very i think male oriented well, your your window into the show is usually the female character anyway. Like, the Doctor's unknowable. We can't ever understand him properly. We're not supposed to. But your window into the show is the female lead. You know, Rose, Donna, you know, uh, Amy, whatever. That's who you're supposed to sort of relate to. So it makes more sense for it to be almost a female-led show. Even though the Doctor's the main character, it's not who you're supposed to relate to. Now, real quick in regard to um, merchandising... Her universe, uh, what, what is her name? Ashley, what? Eckstein. 
she she's is. The voice of, oh, I know she is. She. I'm sorry. You go ahead and say it for the people who don't know. Uh, she's the voice of Ahsoka Tano in Star Wars: The Clone Wars. Yep, and she started her own line of clothing for girls, um, for geek girls. And let me tell you, she is so incredibly nice. I've talked to her at two different conventions now. She helped me pick out a shirt for my wife. Like, spent she ten minutes me with my, me. Yeah, she saw me in my bra. Wow. Okay. There you go. Good for her. <laughs> but, no, because like the first year she uh, started her universe, I was going to be on. This was the Star Wars panel that, if you look at an older episode of Football Trades, I talk about where Bubba Fett hit on me. Um, awesome. <laughs> Mike Bailey was there. He he could back me up on the story, but um, I was picking out a shirt for her uh, for my panel that morning, and she was like, I didn't know who she was, and she was like showing me the different shirts, and like one didn't fit me, so she was like, Here, try this one. And she like, came into the dressing room and was like, I because it, it was too small for me and got stuck, so she was like helping me pull it off. <laughs> and then she like you know what dragging my shirt, I was like, so um. But we, we had talked about how she was going to be on that panel, too. So I was like, what podcast are you from? She goes, oh, I'm not a podcaster. I'm Ahsoka in, Star- in Clone Wars. And I was like, oh, <laughs> you just saw my bra. <laughs> <laughs> and then we wore matching shirts, and we were adorable together. That's very cool. I know. She's really nice. She's awesome. So, so I will I... say the only thing about her universe, if you're going to buy her universe clothes, get it a size or two bigger. Because Ashley's a tiny, tiny girl, and she makes all her sizes based off of her. So if, if you were, like, a natural small, but she's an extra small, she'll put it as a small. So her clothes run really small. So if you're going to buy, like, a shirt for a loved one or something like that, go with a size bigger. That's a good tip. Okay. Yep. Um, so then I was going to take a dig at you, Hope, because, you know, I like doing that. Now, to mm. be fair, in defense of the guy who wouldn't believe you read comic books, you, you do work at Hot Topic, which is the, the place where the guys who used to make fun of Sean and I in high school for liking geek stuff go to buy their Captain America t-shirts, so to be mm-hmm. fair. Mm-hmm. So it is sort of a mecca for D-bags to buy their geek wear. Mm-hmm. So I could see why he might question you. My favorite yeah. are the, like, the My Little Pony douchebags that come in. And they're like, well, Twilight Sparkle shouldn't be an alicorn, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, shut up, I love My Little Pony. <laughs> okay, Hope, if you start talking about shipping, we're ending this call right now. I'm sorry. My brain cannot my brain cannot take Twilight Sparkle and My Little Pony and shipping. I will just start drooling into my microphone and hang the call up. Yeah, that's a good idea. Maybe I should have a discussion with a lady friend of mine and put it up for Who True Freaks about ship wars. Could you do a special, not today, but a special on yeah. shipping and start with just a friggin' definition for some <laughs> of us? I don't need it right now. Just so some it's, of us know what the hell it is. No, I, 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 no. 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 Shag, shut no. the fuck up. I can Google urban slang. I don't need it. No, I'm going to say it in one sentence. Ship is short for relationship. There yeah, I had, I had... Take the fun out of everything. I had to Google it as well. I had no idea, and I thought I thought it had something to do with you know uh, Naruto or something because they've got some shipping din 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 thing. So I, I don't. Just, I figured it was just sex, but whatever. whatever. No, it's it's like just short for relationships. So that way you can have bro ships and stuff. So it's for like you know bro friendships. Okay. So okay. that's all it is. So let's talk about conventions because I just realized well, we're an hour away from where we want to end. Now before we do that, let's talk about fandom and just how expansive Doctor Who got. Uh, for just a split second here. Oh, yes, I forgot about this. Um, Doctor Who, I mean, this blows my mind. First of all, it blows my mind to sit here and think that this show that I watched in the closet, quote-unquote, with my little VHS (laughs) tapes that my wife makes fun of is now a worldwide phenomena, you know, explosive, you know. But then take it a step further. This show has had five spinoffs since New Who started. It has had Torchwood, 
which ran for what four seasons? It it's had the Sarah. Technically running because Miracle Day is still running. <laughs> I guess technically. No one cares about. Miracle I no Day. one cares about Miracle Day, but they did just finish the season. I mean, it's still I think still not canceled yet, but it probably should be because I needed to stop after Children of Earth. Well, it was uh, just ten. Epi- it was just ten episodes long, right? I don't know. I really stopped caring after Yanto died because he was my favorite character, and what? I just I didn't care anymore. Well, oh, it, come uh, on. It's been three years. If people don't know Yanto is dead, <laughs> though I will say Torchwood had still to this day one of my favorite episodes in the Doctor Who universe, which is Countryside. That is oh my god, it's the, so good. That is like one of the top Doctor Who episodes like in this universe. I will put it above almost every normal Doctor Who episode. That episode is phenomenal. If you, if you want to watch Countryside, here's how you do it. You watch it at night, in your house by yourself, go to the front door and unlock it. Okay? Just leave your front door unlocked. There's no reason to worry. How often does someone really come along and rattle your front door? It never happens. But you know it's unlocked. Okay? And, and maybe, like, crack a few windows. Just watch Countryside that way. And then and then just give me a call. Anyway, uh, with all the lights off, by the way. So, we had Torchwood, which ran for four seasons. Sarah Jane Adventures, which ran for, I think, four seasons. You had uh, two reality-based shows, Doctor Who Confidential which ran up until pretty recently, ran through the whole run of the series. You had Totally Doctor Who, which ran for two years, which was like a kid's show version of Doctor Who Confidential. And then there was another spinoff, which wasn't even done by the BBC, called K-9, which was sort of a, a vague spinoff, but still, it was a spinoff of Doctor Who. That's amazing! Five ancillary shows from Doctor Who blows my mind. That now, shows how popular and big this show is. Now think about this. Star Trek had The Next Generation, DS9, Voyager, and Enterprise. Four spin-off shows. Star Trek, that franchise only had four spin-off shows, while Doctor Who, the modern one, that hadn't been around for 40-plus years, on, on, coming on, in on 50 years, had, hasn't had as many spin-off shows as Doctor Who. So that uh, says uh, something about the fandom and the, the, the likability of this new series. I'll take that one step further and say Star Trek really only ever had two, because <laughs> yeah. at any at any given time, there was at most there was only two Star Trek shows on television. There was never four on TV at the same time. That's true. That there was true. Ne- there was Next Gen and DS9 ran parallel. Then I think it was DS9 and Voyager ran parallel. And then when Voyager ended, you got Enterprise. So, I mean, there was never at any point where there was more than two shows running parallel. Here you had Torchwood, Sarah Jane. Um, canine and confidential all running parallel to each other. So you had at least four. Totally Doctor Who didn't last that long. But you had four shows all at the same time. Running in addition to Doctor Who. So it was really yeah. five. But what? Yeah, running along concurrently with Doctor Who. Was yeah. Same. yeah. Insane. Yeah. So, all right. Yes. Conventions. Yes. Um, I w- the reason I want to talk about conventions is, like you said, there was a time for a while that you had to kind of be in the closet when you were a Doctor Who fan. But now you can't go to a convention without seeing, like, tenants and bakers and everyone oh my like running around and angels and and daleks i mean it's so cool fezzes and bow ties yeah i mean i remember going to my first dragon con like 10 years ago and not seeing anything doctor who but like after the influence of it like just coming into the u.s i just remember watching it for the first time and being so excited seeing my first doctor and there wasn't really a lot of them and then the next year they were everywhere Oh, yeah. Like, I was like, oh, I'm going to take a picture of every doctor I see. And about 10 minutes later, I had, like, 12 pictures of doctors. I'm like, okay, that's enough. <laughs> <laughs> it was quite explosive. It's, a, it's like with Firefly. I remember the year Firefly hit. 
and Dragon Con was so everybody had Jane hats on. It's just all of a sudden everybody had them on. I'm like, what the oh, hell yeah. happened? What is that? Doctor Who became very much the same way. And like, it's funny you should mention that because I used to take pictures of all the Doctor Who stuff. And it, honestly, okay, I'm being mean. I'm sorry, guys. But in the old days at Dragon Con, they they have a parade. And the Doctor Who contingent would come through, and I'd always be kind of embarrassed. I'd always be like, oh, my, oh, guys, that's that's not representing well. Don't, don't do that. <laughs> and now, it, they're, like you said, everywhere from, you know, buff guys to hot girls to nerds. Everybody's wearing Doctor Who stuff. It's great. Yeah, there's nothing more, there's nothing more exciting than a very attractive woman wearing one of those little sort of slinky tight uh, TARDIS, you know, mini, mini dresses. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's... Or, Dali, or Dali dresses. Oh, yes. I, I'm going to go the opposite direction that I was reading an, a blog post about how these two parents love Doctor Who and they wanted to get their young kids started in Doctor Who. So instead of uh, for Christmas, because there's always a Christmas special, Santa didn't bring a, their presents. The doctor did. And they would wake the kid up at night by putting a speaker outside of their, the kid's room and playing the TARDIS sound. And so when he broke up Christmas morning and ran downstairs, it was the doctor who like brought their presents. Oh, that <laughs> is oh awesome. Oh, my gosh. I know. And it was amazing. And like the little kid like loved cosplaying. Like, I'm a sucker for small children in cosplay. Like They are just the most adorable thing, and I cannot take it. <laughs> so like they had all these pictures of this like kid as a toddler growing up and like in different like costumes from all the doctors and oh my god it hurts my oh, soul. I've seen, oh that's the kid that dressed as every doctor i think so yeah and okay they, yeah i saw that and, i saw that well and yeah. that's one of the things we never really touched on is that the doctor doesn't just transcend the genders of male and female but it also appeals really to kids as well then i i love the fact that the new show is is so enduring to kids, you know, not only being, you know, at times really scary and giving them good frights, but also giving them, you know, a fun, you know, fun shows to watch. Uh, I don't know if any of you saw recently the little thing with uh, Peter Capaldi and the little kid who uh, yeah. had some autism or, or was uh, was mildly autistic and he was upset about the fact that uh, Capaldi was going to be the new doctor. And, you know, the thing that he did, I can't remember exactly. Well, he, he was he was upset about the, the fact there was change. Yeah, the fact that there was change from Matt Smith to Capaldi, and Capaldi was just really nice about saying that. Uh, what he said he he said he will do his best to be funny and, I think, charming, but he'll probably be noisy at first. <laughs> it, was, it was essentially what he said. Yeah, my, it was very see, touching. My favorite Capaldi story is his daughter was watching, like, one of the last Doctor Who episodes with Matt Smith leading, and Capaldi's daughter was actually like, I'm going to hate whoever plays the next Doctor. And he had already been cast at the time. He was just like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, awesome. I love, you know, with, with Big Finish, I hear this a lot, and Doctor, the, the, the BBC show, you hear a lot where people get an opportunity to be on the show, whether it's just in a small role or a large role. And, and many of them, who are a little older, will say, well, I couldn't pass it up. My child would never forgive me. Mm-hmm. Which I just love that the kids are... Now, to be honest, it started off as a family show. And Sean and I obviously watched it as kids. So it's not that it's a new thing that kids are involved. But I guess just as I'm older and I have my own kids, it's incredibly touching. I mean, I, I often talk about how when I was a kid, I used to watch Liz Slayton run around being a hero on TV with Doctor Who. And then 30 years later, I'm sitting there with my kids watching the Sarah Jane adventures as mm-hmm. Liz Slayton running around on the screen as Sarah Jane being a hero. And it just... 
I get teary-eyed thinking about it. So. Oh, yes. But, I mean, I might hate you, Shag, but I love the stories that you tell about watching these episodes with your daughters and, like, explaining how, like, your daughter reacts to the show. <laughs> like, my favorite is when you uh, were had compared um, to the Pond's last episode, Angels in Manhattan, and when uh, Amy stuck her hand behind her and went, Melody, and you were talking about how you've actually done that to your daughter. Like, I think that's probably one of my favorite things to hear you talk about. So. You love your daughter. I do. I'm a <laughs> sucker for her. Yeah. She's, she's got me wrapped. I bought her her first sonic screwdriver while I was at Gallifrey 1 just recently. Oh, segue. Yeah, so I went to the Gallifrey 1 convention. I left my family on Valentine's Day <laughs> because they decided that... When else will Doctor Who fans be available? Oh, on Valentine's Day. <laughs> now, to Thanks, be fair, Adam. the convention is celebrating its 25th year. So, back when they did start this Valentine's Day tradition, most Doctor Who fans didn't have anything to do on Valentine's Day. <laughs> anyway, um, amazing conventions in Los Angeles every year. Uh, and they get somewhere around 3,700 people. It sells out very quickly. And it's, it is unlike any convention I've ever been to. I've been to lots of sci-fi conventions, comic conventions, things like that, and I always enjoy them. I always find something to enjoy, but I've never felt so welcome. Like, I went out there to, to Los Angeles by myself. I didn't know a soul, and every time I'm in line, I end up chatting with everyone because everyone is just so nice, and everyone has a different aspect of the show that they love. Some people, it's the cosplay opportunity. Some people, it's, you know the old series some people it's a new series the companions whatever everyone loves something different and yet everyone just gets along it's so strange it's a wonderful inviting environment i absolutely loved it so this year some of the headliners were paul mcgann eighth doctor colin baker sixth doctor and i got a chance to meet paul mcgann he paul mcgann for me is my doctor because during the wilderness years from 1996 to 2005 i mentioned i was really into doctor who i felt like you know a big fish in a small pond whatever he was the doctor during that period that's when I was reading everything. I was completely consumed in Doctor Who, and I had my hands on everything. I felt completely plugged in. So for me, he'll always be my doctor. To get a chance to meet him and find out he's actually a really nice guy was great. I chatted with him for a minute. I got his autograph, and I figured it'd be one of these where you get the autograph and he moves you on. He signed my thing. I asked him a question, and he just leaned back in the chair and chatted with me for about two or three minutes. And even though there's this line out the door behind me, I just thought that was incredibly nice. We had a, you know, a nice conversation. I got a chance to talk to him a second time later incredibly nice guy it was everything i could have hoped for met colin baker um he's very funny guy uh he said some fairly naughty things which were hilarious that i shouldn't repeat um <laughs> very very funny guy though uh i made a complete ass of myself in front of nicola bryant who played perry on uh, the sixth doctor um were, were you <laughs> staring no by the way she is Gorgeous. I mean, she mm-hmm. she was uh, she got cast because she was gorgeous. Okay, yes. back in 1983, 84, she got cast because she right, was gorgeous. Yeah. That was 30 years ago. She, I think she's more beautiful now than she was then. She's stunning. Well, I I, I don't know about you, but I can say, you know, I haven't seen Nicola Bryant in a while. But you know, just going from you know looking at Sarah Jane, I think she aged wonderfully as well. I think mm-hmm. a lot of the companions have really turned out to be incredibly attractive. Uh, you know, and uh, I'm sorry, this is so shallow hope. But, <laughs> oh, no, I'm enjoying it. But, but, but the thing is, you know, the, the, the companions, uh, a lot of times, yes, during the early points in the show, were, were brought on because they looked good and they 
they would get the they'd give you know the kids something fun to watch and give the dads something fun to watch as that well. Is, that's actually the exact quote. The, the the producer at the time, John Nathan Turner, who would be the equivalent for us of, of, of Stephen Moffat, he used to call the companions quote a little something for the dads. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> uh, and the fact that they and the fact that these women have aged so gracefully and look so wonderful still, you know, is a testament to the fact that you know well maybe just selective you know British breeding or something. Who knows. I mean, you, you, it's okay that you guys are shallow. Like, you guys don't want me to start talking about John Berriman. Oh, well, goodness. That'll come later. He's the Disney so, prince that kisses all the princes. Oh, how funny. That's good. That's nice. the best one, because he sings and dances, and he's a Disney oh, yeah? prince, and he kisses they, all the other Disney princes. He's absolutely <laughs> a Disney prince. Very true. So the, the, the way I put my foot into it with Nicola Bryant was we were just talking, and I, I talked about how I had a chance to meet John Nathan Turner, her former boss. I got a chance to meet him, and I said, oh, you know, it was like it was when you and Colin were doing the show. It was like, oh, geez, a million years ago. And I meant, for me, it was a million years ago that I met him. But the way I suppose it comes out is I'm saying you were on the show a million years ago. <laughs> so basically just called her really old without meaning to. So I just when I said this, she goes, thanks for that. I'm like, oh, jeez. <laughs> anyway, so uh, yay for that. Got to meet Terrence Dix, had a chance to tell him that he's the reason I became a voracious reader, his Doctor Who novelizations. Um, that was kind of a neat moment. Met uh, Stephen Cole. I talked for a good while with Stephen Cole, the guy who was the head guy behind the Doctor Who books through the uh, 90s. He was a really nice guy. Peter Angelides, got to meet Paul Cornell, all these folks. Then um, those are the folks I got a chance to talk to. There were some other big guests that I saw. I did not get to talk to personally, but I saw a lot of their interviews. Billy Piper was there. Rose. Uh, Arthur Darville. Rory. Uh, that was Those were pretty cool hearing them talk. Um, Darville's very funny, very... Um, not very gregarious, you know. He's almost a little bit like Rory in that he's just kind of quiet and has the sharp-witted comments from time to time. Billy Piper's exactly like you would imagine her to be, um, funny but very down to earth and not very knowledgeable about Doctor Who. Not that she doesn't know what she did or anything like that, but just the rest of the history, she doesn't know it that well. I mean, she never saw Doctor Who. The first episode, she said, the first episode of Doctor Who she ever saw was the one she was in. So. Um, a couple of my other favorite companions that were there, because there was tons and tons of guests. Katie Manning, who played Joe Grant in The Third Doctor, she is hilarious. Nobody in the world tells a story as funny as this lady. She is crazy. She gets up and she's very animated. She, she's done a lot of cartoon voices and stuff in her animation work, so she's really good at, at using her voice and telling stories. She's, oh my gosh. she I could just listen to her for hours and hours and hours. If you listen to her Big Finish audios, you know what I'm talking about. She's amazing. Fraser Hines is always great. Deborah Watling was great. I love one thing they did. They got Fraser Hines who played Jamie uh, with the second Doctor and Deborah Watling who played Victoria with the second Doctor. They actually got them together and did, quote unquote, in the studio, if you will, uh, DVD commentaries. They they played two episodes of the recently found stuff. You know, the End of the World or Enemy of the World Enemy and of the world. Uh, thank you and Web of Fear. Web, yeah, they played one episode from each. Sat them down in a couch in front of the big screen and they just gave commentary throughout it. It was oh, really cool. And they expected everyone to be gone. Like, they, there was a big star right before them. And they expected, you know, everyone to be in the room for the big star. And then when they came out, the, the room would be empty because it's classic who. The room was packed. And they were so touched and honored by that. They just couldn't believe it. So that, that was really sweet. Uh, one of the panels well, but, 
What's that? Oh, yeah, that was my question. I was wondering, like, what sort of panels did they have there? Like, whether the ones you went to or the ones you wanted to go to but just can make? Like, what, what was the panels like there? Sure. Well, there, there's five concurrent program panels running pretty much at all times. Uh, one was pretty much devoted to cosplay the whole time, whether it was about sewing or how to do your, um, your costume or how to, you know, uh, play the character while you're wearing it just uh, that was I didn't go to any of that but if you're a cosplay person I mean that was really neat there was uh, the other panels were sort of just a, a mishmash there was the main stage which is where you got to see all the big interviews of course then like there was one panel I went to which was in a smaller room probably my favorite panel of the whole weekend just because it appealed to me it was about the wilderness years that I keep talking about that you know 89 to 96 um, 89 to 2005 and had a lot of the writers who were writing the books and working for Big Finish at that time sort of reliving that era and it was just so neat to see these guys and talk about the stuff because back then that was new who like we would sit here and talk about what's it going to be like Peter Capaldi back then we'd be talking about ooh what's it going to be like when they relaunch with Paul McGann and he's lost his memory and it's a whole new story I mean that that was new who back then so seeing these guys after all these years together was really cool there was a great big finish panel where they talked about what's coming up with big finish you get other ones where you get sometimes you get um fan run panels like might be just about some aspect of doctor who like you know there was a panel on um i'm just trying to look here uh overrated and overlooked films and tv series you know things like that although that had actually a lot of real stars on it um Anyway, you're going to get panels on every aspect of Doctor Who, from the TV series, the books, the comics, toys, action figures, really nitpicking and tearing apart a special oh, particular character, you know, whatever. So anything you can imagine uh, is there. They had a lot of writers who'd have panels. They had other people who talked about, like, working on other UK TV shows. There was a lot of actual genuine science panels. Like, um, so, I mean, there, it, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want to get into too much because I don't know. I didn't study the agenda that deeply. But probably uh, then at night they have fun events. Like one thing, have you guys ever heard of a comedian who did a bit called um, Moths Ate My Doctor Who Scarf? No. No, really? Sorry. Oh, wow. Okay. It did pretty well a few years back. A guy named Toby Haddock. A very funny stand-up routine he did. And it was about him learning how to basically communicate with his son in a sense. And he's done a follow-up called My Stepson Stole My Sonic Screwdriver. And he's a very funny stand-up comic. He knows more about classic Doctor Who than probably anyone alive. I mean, he's scary, the stuff he knows. I mean, he's sitting here having a, you know, a diatribe on Megalos. You know, it just blows your mind. <laughs> and, and then, he, you know, you combine the, the stand-up comedy, the classic Who knowledge, and the fact that he has a stepson who's deaf. And, he, and it's, it's this story of him learning to communicate with his deaf stepson. And Doctor Who is a bit of a bridge that gets him there. And so it, it's a combination of stand-up comedy and heartwarming tale. I mean, it's, it was like nothing. I, I can't I can't even compare it to anything. It was absolutely wonderful. And he had us laughing our asses off. He's written the he's written the stand-up routine in such a way that anybody who doesn't watch Doctor Who can enjoy it. But then he said, "Well, I'm going to go ahead and, and throw some stuff out there just to." Um, uh, I, he threw stuff out there just specifically for the Who fans. Like there were more Megalos jokes, things like that. Anyway. Toby Haddock, hilarious. Did, Sean, did you ever watch Torchwood? Um, no, unfortunately, I've, I kind of bowed out after Torchwood. You know, I, I, I heard such negative things about it initially. However, I have heard, and I want to go back, since it is all on, all on Netflix for yep. streaming, I need to go back and watch it. Because, you know, I've heard Children of Earth is by far some of the best science fiction, 
you know, not only Doctor Who or Doctor Who related, but best science fiction around uh, that's been produced almost ever, some people say. So I need to go check it out. But, you know, what, what did you have to say about Torchwood? Well, where I was going to go, by the way, Children of Earth is really good. Freaking, yeah. freaking Peter Capaldi put me in tears. Actually, I have heard that. Oh, my God. My wife freaking, what's wrong? What's wrong? Torchwood. <laughs> anyway, um, there's a guy named Tom Price who was on Torchwood. He didn't even have, a, he wasn't even one of the main characters, but he played um, Gwen Cooper. Ooh, wow, I'm blanking. I think it's Gwen Cooper. Anyway, he played Gwen's former partner who was still in the police force. And he'd show up every couple episodes. And he was kind of this, like, not, he was just this, I'm going to say doofy, but he wasn't doofy. He was just this kind of guy who wasn't deeply steeped in the world of Torchwood. So he was always kind of an outsider, like a normal guy. And anyway, um, he has now become a stand-up comic. And he is also hilarious. So it's just kind of fun that you go to this convention and you don't expect to get stand-up comics. And if you do, they're usually not funny. It's usually a couple of fans that go on stage and you're like, ooh, this is really embarrassing. Let oh, it yeah. end. Let it end. These guys are hysterical. So uh, I just I, I recommend if you get a chance to see either Tom Price or Toby, Toby Haddock, definitely do it. Then they have this fun thing late at night called Mystery Theater 337. Obviously, it sounds like Mystery Science Theater 3000. It's supposed to sound that way. They watch old Doctor Who episodes and just rip it to shreds the whole way through. <laughs> and Now, I could go for that because I, I myself am a huge fan of Mystery Science Theory 3000. So, And some of those, yes, yeah, some of those old Doctor Who episodes – they definitely could fit the bill for some oh, it's, misting. For some it's fun. They do. Uh, I've, in the two years I've gone, I got to see them do the Dalek Invasion of Earth, the Peter Cushing movie. Oh, yes. And that, then I got to see a Colin Baker time lash. So, fun oh stuff. Lord. <laughs> so, real quick, uh, I'll wrap this up here. Uh, in the dealer room, every kind of Doctor Who thing you can imagine. More Doctor Who stuff than you knew existed is there. Uh, <laughs> really? Oh my god. I mean, there's so much Doctor Who. I mean, all these people selling bow ties and sonic screwdrivers and patches and action figures and pictures and toys and books. And I mean, just, it blows your mind. You're like, I had no idea that there was this much merchandise out there. Yeah, you, you can know? find you can find sonic screwdrivers for pretty much any iteration of the Doctor that had a sonic screwdriver. Yeah. I know you can get, find like third, fourth, fifth. I know, I know they sort of phased it out. Yeah, the War Doctor one is one of the new ones, and of course yep. the modern ones. So, yeah, the but again, old who going back to the old who stuff, you could not find any merchandise old who aside from like I said, you know, maybe a pattern for to to knit yourself a Doctor Who scarf or a Doctor Who tote bag if you pledged money to a PBS fund drive. So, well, well by the late '80s, you could get some really really crappy Daphole action figures, oh, or that. you could get some little lead miniatures for role playing games, mm -hmm. and you, you were starting to tap out pretty quick. Or you could probably get lots of buttons. There were a lot of buttons and pins you could get. Now we did fail to mention, by the way, I'm off topic, but we failed to mention the Doctor Who fan club of America. Uh, I was a card-carrying member of that, by the way, in 1984. Just I'm not surprised. <laughs> There's like uh, a fan okay. club of America? Doctor Who fan club of America. We had our what? Own. I'm Googling there, this right now. There was a giant newspaper that came out called the Whovian Times. They sold books. It was it was great. It was a great source for Doctor Who. All right. So in the dealer room, I picked up from Big Finish, I picked up uh, Jago and Lightfoot Volume 2 or Season 2. Those things are amazing. Uh, Paul McGann's Dark Eyes 2. I picked up a Cyberman action figure, a deck of cards. Uh, now, do you remember the old Target novelization, Sean? Yes, I do. Did you know there were some printed in hardcover? Get out. I know! That's what I said! I just remember, I just remember them all being in little soft-colored yeah. books with the sort of vague, uh, you know, 
painted you know pictures of the doctor and you know what might be going on in the movie so uh, or what might be going on in the serial so yeah. no hardcover versions than that yeah. that is insane same cover same books and they would be apparently in england they were released in hardcover first and then um softcover well, i, I think, didn't know this i think so, that would make sense because you know that's that's the uk and i'm certain andy and steven and dave are all looking or listening to this and going of course you fools so, right right so i picked up uh doctor who and the gunfighters in hardcover i thought it'd be fun so oh, neat um final last thing my my moment of close to stardom was i fell asleep in the video room watching Earthshock because i didn't want to go back to my hotel room yet, but I didn't really want to go to the karaoke room, so I just sat in the video room, fell asleep. And literally on the other side of the wall I was leaning on was Chris Hartwig and uh, Chloe Dykstra, however you say her name, his girlfriend. And they were running around, goofing around. So, I, like I almost... Like goofing around? Well, I mean, if you look on Twitter and Instagram, there's like a million pictures of everybody at the convention with Chris Hartwig and his girlfriend, other than me. So, um, oh, okay. everyone I, got I their... thought you meant like they were having a little something, something secretly no, behind no, no, the no, wall, no, no, no. and I mean, you woke yeah. up and heard it. No, they were there at the convention, and apparently, I didn't know this until I got back to my hotel room and looked on every social media and saw, oh, look, there they are. Oh, all of these were posting, oh, well, I was asleep in the video room, and literally on the other side of the wall. Wow, look at that. Okay. So, that was my uh, brush with stardom. <laughs> so, highly recommend Gallifrey 1. Amazing convention. Um, if you want tickets, you got to buy them fast. Otherwise, you got to buy them from someone else after they sell out. I seriously can't recommend it enough. And send me a message if you're going, so I'll have someone else to talk to. <laughs> Even though everyone's very inviting and nice. Now, the other big Doctor Who convention in in America is uh, the Chicago TARDIS, which happens over Thanksgiving. Again, I think they sat there and looked at it and said, "Okay, Doctor Who fans, when are they not busy? Oh, you know, Thanksgiving and Valentine's Day, because hmm. nobody loves them." So uh, I've never been to Chicago TARDIS. I know a lot of people that say it's amazing. Uh, it, it's a it's a very large size convention. It's it's the other big convention in the United States, and it's supposed to be a lot of fun. So you know, it might be worth checking out if that's closer to you. And then I want to talk just very briefly about Dragon Con. I know we've talked about it a little bit before. Um, it's pretty much I would say like a mini kind of Gallifrey one by the sounds of it. And really, because it's one of the bigger things, um, you know, with all the other bajillion fandoms that are at Dragon Con. I was, was going to say, I'll interrupt you for real quick. Make no mistake, Gallifrey One's 3,000 people. Dragon Con's like 80,000 people. It's just, you're right, it's the, the Doctor Who track is a microcosm of Gallifrey. Maybe that's the way to say it. Yeah, it's because it's you have everything from, like, Disney Channel to, like, Avengers to, like, Filk. I mean, like, it's... Every, if, if you can, if you can imagine it, if, if you have a fandom, it's gonna be there. Like I've seen just these random up the wall, like really obscure references and shows that I didn't even think about for like ten years of my life at Dragon Con. Like I mean, you're it's, it's all, Yeah, I saw oh, what was it? And I was so excited when I saw it. It was some show. Oh, it was um, Princess Guinevere and the Jewel Riders. Like no one has heard of this show. But the thing is, it was the Who's show that? that it's the show that the first episode of Power Rangers replaced. Oh, good lord. Yeah, because I used to watch Princess Guinevere and the Jewel Riders when when I was like four or five, and I remember being so mad because this Power Rangers show took their time slot and canceled the show. And so, and then I got into Power Rangers, and it was great. But I mean, that is something like like <laughs> that's that's what Dragon Con is. You, it's pretty much any fandom you can ever think of is at this con. But I just wanted to mention it briefly because you can kind of in if, in the last ten years, I've been able to see the rise of the Doctor Who fandom, as I like to mention it. 
because I remember when the first year I got really into Doctor Who, I was looking for a lot of Doctor Who panels. And there were some, but they, they still had a lot of, of the other BBC shows running that were equal. The next year and all the years previous, I would say about at least a third of the BBC track is nothing but Doctor Who panels. Yeah, it used to just be a bunch of whose line is it anyway, and you know, one Doctor Who panel the whole weekend long. And it was always just a bunch of people shoved in a room. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's massive now. I mean, they get the they get the actors now. I mean, they've had John Barrowman, they've had Sylvester McCoy. Um, gosh, they, they had Gianto. They had an they had another. Um, they had James Marsters. They had John John Barrowman's the big one, but they had two doctors last year. They had Peter Davidson and I th- it it wasn't Tom Baker's the other Baker, Colin Baker. Colin Baker, yeah. Yeah, the two of them were there last year. Um, Peter Davidson was there this past year. Yeah. Son of a bitch. It was really nice. One year I've, the, the one year I've been gone in like 10 years. He was super nice, Jack. <laughs> I, I met him when I was like 12, but I'd really like to see him again. He's, he's one of my favorites. But, um, yeah, Sylvester McCoy. We had three doctors. It was, uh, I think it was Baker, Davidson, and McCoy was there because I remember McCoy making funny faces on command. <laughs> so, I mean, it's really exploded this year, uh, the last few years at DragonCon, and it's so much fun to be a part of it. And having the bajillion different panels, they have everything from like old Who companions, new Who companions, old Who versus new Who, uh, what's to come in new Who, uh, let's look at Matt Smith's years, Tenet years, Eccleston years, like they have all these panels, and it's just, it's so much fun, and the cosplay just keeps evolving more and more, like the first time I saw a real Weeping Angel, and it was amazingly accurate and incredibly scary, it was awesome that this is just progressed so far in such a short amount of time. And then the last con I want to mention, and I'm going to talk about this a little bit later when I talk about like the internet and stuff like that, is 221B Con. And you might go, well, why am I talking about a Sherlock Holmes convention? Well, the thing is, the Sherlock fandom and the Doctor Who fandom have kind of become like sister fandoms to each other, and Supernatural has kind of become like the little sister fandom in that, and then you have all the mini ones like Cabin Pressure and stuff like that. Um, but Doctor Who and Sherlock, because Moffat and Gaddis, right on both, have become sisters. And they have, and I'll talk more about Hulock a little bit later, but when I went to 221BCon last year, there was a huge influence of Doctor Who. And, like, what I actually liked about 221BCon, of while it's a Sherlock Holmes convention, they open it up to other fandoms. Like, this year, I'm on the Welcome to Night Vale panel. And because Night Vale has become so prominent, a lot of people who like Sherlock and Doctor Who have started listening to Night Vale, which I should highly recommend because it's so good. Um, I just saw the live show on Friday. It was amazing. <laughs> Sorry, I had to brag for a second. Um, it sold out in like 20 minutes, so I was like really excited to go. Um, I, uh, these two fandoms have become sister fandoms. So like when I went to Chichu on Beacon, they had panels and they had cosplayers. My favorite was they put up a TARDIS in the middle of the lobby. And they didn't. I was talking with Crystal and Heather. You can hear my post Chichu on Beacon uh, episode under Hopeful Trades. Well, I was talking to Crystal and Heather, who's two of the founders. You know, they put it, it was one of Crystal's friends, and they put it up, the TARDIS up as a joke. Everyone flipped their shit over it, and they took so many pictures. My, <laughs> my favorite is, I have a picture of Moriarty and Moran hijacking the TARDIS. And people just had a blast, like, with the Doctor Who fandom. And you, you see them often go hand in hand and often have so many crossovers, and... Yeah, so like I, I, that's what I love about how these fandoms can kind of coexist together. So even though it was a Sherlock Holmes convention, it was also sort of a Doctor Who one as well. Very cool. I mean, obviously they're they're closely tied, as you said, with Moffat and Gaddis. Mm-hmm. Um, it's 
and it's very nice that and maybe it's just a geek thing I don't know but there a lot of geek culture is just so very inclusive of other groups simply because maybe because we felt as outcasts for so long it's like we're not going to turn anyone away you know we're all part of this maybe mm-hmm. that's part of it I don't know yeah so I, I kind of wanted to talk about merchandise uh, we've already talked about it a little bit but something I've kind of noticed and I think merchandise is a direct relevant uh, rele- rele- <laughs> uh is directly related to the boom in the fans and uh, how popular it's become in the United States. Because I know I, I work at a Hot Topic. God, I hate it. <laughs> but, actually, no. I like some of it. I hate other parts of it. Um, but something I've noticed over the last kind of two years I've worked there is there's a, my first Christmas there, there wasn't a lot of Doctor Who stuff. Like We had some shirts and stuff, and we had some screwdrivers. But that Christmas, it wasn't a lot of that kind of thing. What Last year was that? Christmas, this was 2000. Let's see, it was it was 2012. Okay. And but this year, I guess we had got a much bigger license to it because the merchandise we have is borderline ridiculous, guys. We have a Sonic screw screwdriver pizza cutter. Yep. We have ice cube trays that make awesome Jello shots. If I do say so myself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're Tardis and Daleks. Uh, we have shower curtains, we have shower racks, we have toothbrush holders, cookie cu- uh, cutters, salt and pepper shakers, like the amount of just like, and this is a hot topic, it's supposed to be like kind of a pop culture music store. This is all merchandise that we sell on our floor, and it's just starting to become borderline ridiculous, like, but it still sells really well, and I think that's a like just a direct relation to how popular the fandom has gotten. I'd also put a little bit of, of that off on the fact that this was the last year was the 50th anniversary so i think they had you know a sort of impetus for them to promote the show as much as they could Mm -hmm. so i wouldn't put that past it that is true because we did get a lot of specialty items like uh we had the the tardis coffee mug and then they released a silver chrome tardis coffee mug Mm. do you think there used to be a reputation in the 90s that star trek fans would buy anything I mean, I used to work at a comic book store that sold a lot of collectible specialty type stuff. And we used to say Star Trek fans would buy anything. I mean, you'd put Star Trek on a plate, they're going to buy plate, collector's plates. I mean, just anything. Do you think Doctor Who's getting to that point where anything sells? I, shower curtains? I mean, it's... It's, it's shower racks. Like, yeah. where you put, like, your soap and stuff. Like, yeah, I, I mean... I, I totally thought about buying that shower rack, by the way. But. That's totally okay. I, did, I totally <laughs> thought about buying that shower curtain. That's <laughs> okay. But I, um, I wonder if we're at that point, if Doctor Who's just that big that anything will slap a Dalek on it and it'll friggin' sell. Period. End of story, I wonder. You know, I I, I, I don't know, because I think for a while there it was, like Sean said, I think it was because of the 50th anniversary, but we're not past the 50th anniversary, and we're kind of in between seasons, and we're still getting in all this, like, weird merchandise. Like, the shower curtains and the shower rack just start, went on sale two weeks ago. And I know we were talking, uh, um, my manager was on a manager call the other day, so this is Hot Topic spoilers. Ooh. <laughs> Hot Topic is going to start putting in a home section. So it's stuff like pillows and shower curtains and those like those kind of gift for not just Doctor Who, but like, you know, Marvel, DC. And yep. they're going to be like a home gift section. And that's something Makes we're going to, yeah, like Game of Thrones, like that's something that we're going to be starting. And so, like, maybe we are starting to get to that point. We're not, maybe not just Doctor Who, but maybe some other stuff. Because we're starting to come out with some weird Walking Dead and some uh, Game of Thrones stuff, too, so. I want a TARDIS garden gnome. Um, That'd be awesome. It so makes for, sounds. 
<laughs> For me, it seemed like the, the merchandising boom that started here in the States was the beginning of the Matt Smith era. Like, I mean, there was stuff out there. You could get the screwdrivers during Tenet's era. You, get the, you could get the books. You could get the comics. You could get, you know, some knick-knacky stuff. But it seemed like with the Matt Smith era is when it just exploded, which would have been, what, 2010? I think it was uh, when the license was released, though, because I think um, BBC has the license for so long. It, uh, we had been fighting to get, and we're having the same problem with Sherlock right now, is we had, as a hot topic, we had to fight to get the license first. So it had already been out like four or five years before we started getting any Doctor Who stuff. Hmm. And so now that we have a full license, we started getting in our first Sherlock stuff. Because I think, you know, both being BBC shows, they saw the you know, the huge hype over Doctor Who and that's selling so well that we're starting to get in our first Sherlock stuff now. And I'm hoping, and it's something that people have been asking for, but that was one reason we couldn't sell Sherlock for a while because it wasn't licensed in America other than DVDs and soundtracks. Interesting. Yeah, Interesting. they, they, uh, I remember there was for a while you couldn't get really any Doctor Who merchandise, but you could buy the DVDs. So I think that, uh, I think the way the license works, and don't quote me because I could be wrong, I think the DVDs have to come out first. And those have to be out so long before they can release other merchandise. And they release a little bit at a time just to see how well it does. And then after that is when the floodgates can open, as they have. Hmm. Well, the first time I really saw it, um, just astonishing to me, was Christmas time 2012. I was at Books a Million. I don't know if you guys have those where you are, but they're like. I big... love Books a Million. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> I, was in, I was in Books a Million, and they had. Not just a little section for Doctor Who. They had this giant table, and it was covered with Doctor Who merchandise. And I couldn't get to the table because there were so many people swarming around it. And it was like, what the hell is going on? Mm -hmm. You know, my little show, again, you know, watching in the closet with my little VHS tapes. Uh, you know, I couldn't even get to the table. I was like, okay, something's happening, you know. Uh, obviously, I knew the show was popular, but the merchandising, that's when I was like, Wow. Yeah, I know. I agree with you. There's, we've got uh, the same thing here at Barnes and Noble. They have like sections cordoned off in the middle, which are various Doctor Who items, like Tardis Yahtzee cans. We have and, Tardis Jenga. Yeah, Tardis Jenga as well. We've seen <laughs> I, that. I own the Yahtzee for the record. Just, uh, just the the amount of stuff they put that I'm certain. I'm pretty certain there is a Doctor Who Monopoly game because they made Doctor Who. They yes, made there is. one for the 50th anniversary. So there you go. Well, they had one before that too. So. Mm -hmm. So I there's two of them out there. Uh -huh. um, in fact, I, my wife and I went for a walk yesterday, and we walked like two miles. Anyway, on the way back, we live in a very boring suburban little area. A woman drives by in her little soccer soccer mom minivan, TARDIS license plate on the front. It's like, what the hell? Really? Mm -hmm. So, it's everywhere, man. Yep. Everywhere. It's like we were mentioning earlier, everybody and their mom are now Doctor Who fans. Yep. Mm -hmm. Whole freaking world. We'll only have to see what kind of new merchandise comes out. But it's kind of exciting that we're getting all this great merchandise. Yup. Okay. Right. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm looking ahead here on the agenda. What the fuck is Troc? Okay. Oh dear. So, Troc is short... I can't talk, sorry. Troc is short for Time Lord Rock. And the, the way uh, Troc came about is it was originally formed by Alex Day. His name is Nermion on YouTube. He's what, uh, one of those YouTube celebrities who like roles with like Hank and John Green and stuff like that. And he formed it with Charlie McDonald, who is also another big YouTube uh, fan. 
and they formed this band, and it was after the kind of rise of Wizard Rock in the early 2000s. And just a quick brief thing, if you don't know what Wizard Rock is, it was started, uh, the first known Harry Potter song was written in 2000 up in uh, Los Angeles by Switchblade Kittens. And then shortly after, Paul and Joe, Joe DeGeorge... <laughs> hey, there, it's I'm really... so old. <laughs> Go ahead. It's all right. And then Paul and Joe DeGeorge started Harry and the Potters, and it kind of grew from there. And if you want to... Now there's over 700 bands internationally who plays music about Wizard Rock and Harry Potter. Um, if you if you want a really wow. good... Oh, it's so good. Like, you don't what, even know. They, hold on. What are they singing about? Are they singing like, oh, you know, with Harry Potter, oh, Hermione, I love you, or is it like, you know, oh, Voldemort, we're going to kick your ass, or is it... Some of, like, their early CDs were very jokey, um, because they, they started it originally as a joke, but when it actually became, like, a serious thing, they kind of switched their music, and a lot of people like Matt Majacomo, who is the Whomping Willow... <laughs> Um, you he... keep saying so many funny words. <laughs> hey, man. Matt's real name is Majacomo, and he's like one of the nicest person you ever meet. And he was in a hug contest, and he gives the best hugs. Okay. Um, but, like, originally it did start kind of jokey, but then it started slowly progressing into, like, really serious forms of music. Um, so when Matt re first released his first albums, they were very jokey, but then he released his Metal Wizard Rock album. And it's really good because it's about touring as a wizard rocker and, like, the pain of being, like, away from his family and, like, that time period and, like, long lonely nights and fighting with his own personal demons and depression. And it's an incredibly good album. And it's kind of like the meta kind of wizard rock album. And then you have other bands like the Ramus Lupins. And while Alex Car Carpenter is a complete douchebag on wheels, um, he is an incredible musician. Like, he, uh, his song, um, Seven Potters is about that in the seventh book when they're fleeing and they're they're each disguised as Harry. And it's a really and truly kind of like kind of going to war song and and like stating like why they're fighting this war. And so and then you have bands like Peeve. Peeve is a total joke band. Like, you know, he he's a big joker because he's based on the character of Peeves. So he has a song called Expelliarmus Kid and it's this Western song like Expelliarmus Kid. And then he has another song called Dear Laura Mallory, and if you don't know, Laura Mallory was trying to, she actually was from here in Georgia, was trying to get Harry Potter banned in schools. And so he wrote the song called Dear Lord, Laura Mallory, and it's very nice, and he's trying to come up with the reasons why Harry Potter's not bad. And finally he goes, alright, fine, Laura, you win. Harry Potter is Satan, and then it goes into like this metal track, and it's like Harry Potter is Satan, <laughs> Harry Potter is Satan in disguise. It's so good. I can totally send you guys can, some. Can can they sell this and make money off it without getting sued by Rowling? See, there's a big controversy there for a while. Actually, uh, J.K. Rowling loves it. It's Warner Brother that has a problem with it. Oh, uh, well, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah. So, yeah. and that's why, like, there's musicals like the Harry Potter musical. They had to change the name of it to a Very Potter musical because Warner Brother was getting ready to sue the pants off them. But yeah. if you want to learn more about Wizard Rock, um, well, tell us more about Trock. Yeah, give me a second. I'm almost there. Shut up. <laughs> if you want to know hate more you. about, I hate you too. Mean it. You know, this is the very last sentence I'm trying to say, and you're making it like a two-minute-long sentence. Good, you shut up for me. I can keep interrupting. <laughs> now, if you want to learn more about the history of Wizard Rock, uh, Melissa Nelly wrote a book called Harry a History, and it's the history of the Harry Potter fandom. It's a very excellent book. It's so well-written, and, like, the best chapter is the one when 9-11 happened, 
and how she turned to the Harry Potter fandom to help her find her sister who was in the World Trade Center. Like, it's, it's an incredible book. So if you ever want to read a great novel about just fandom in general, go read uh, that one. But Shrock came out of this uh, kind of movement because Alex Day was friends with, like, Harry and the Potters and stuff like that. And he loved Doctor Who so much. And so he wanted to start his own band. So he started the band Chameleon Circuit. And they're the forefront band. Like, they're the pioneer band. Like, Harry and the Potters was the pioneer band of um, Wizard Rock. And their first song um, was called Exterminate, Regenerate. And then shortly after that, they came out with an awful lot of running to do. And it's great because awful <laughs> lot of an awful lot of running to do is literally a rock version of the Doctor Who theme song with words. Okay, it's oh, fantastic. Well, we had something like that back in the day, but it was called Doctor in the TARDIS. Oh if you remember god. that. Oh my god! And it was it, it was sung by, who was it was it sung by the Time Lords, and uh, it wasn't sure. really. It, it, most people probably know it now as the sort of. Uh, Rock and roll song. Yeah, it was Gary Rock and Rolls with a bass. Yeah, that they play at all the sports at the sports stadiums. You know, whenever they're doing. Da da da. Hey. We also had Doctor in Distress. We also had. Oh God, Roberta Tovey had her song. I've got a whole disc of these these goofy Doctor Who tunes, but I don't know if they really count as Trock though. So all right, so we interrupted you because we're old people and like to talk about our stuff. But go ahead. Totally, I I love learning about new stuff because, like I said, I love history. Okay. Then, you know, here's what we need. Here, Sean, here's your tag. This is how the show is ending. You're going to put on John Pertwee's I Am the Doctor, and that's how you're going to take this show out when we when we eventually get done in four hours. Or I can send you off a lot of running to do so people can hear truck. So, or we could do both. <laughs> how about this? We can do both. You can do the first one and then have it fade into the second one so it shows old Who and new Who fandoms. That works. Okay. I win. <laughs> Shut up, Shaq. <laughs> but the thing hey, is, you. like, you know, to kind of... Um, get more track it kind of grew after that it's not as prominent as of as wizard rock there's probably about 60 main bands opposed to like you know 750 60 though good lord 60 like uh, mr saxon's another good one i really enjoy his videos and his songs and um they're actually communion circuit is uh run through dftba records and you can buy both their albums and they also released another album that had about 20 different track bands on there with 20 different songs so you could have hear a little bit of everything but um, the, they kind of been growing recently. They've been featured on uh, Chameleon Circuit has been featured on the Nerdist. They've been featured on BBC America. When, uh, when they premiered their second album, it premiered number twenty-three on the Billboard Heat Secret charts in the U.S. In the oh U.S., God. not uh, not the wow. U.K. Yeah, and um, it was the first DFTBA record to do so. And if you don't know, DFTBA is uh, owned by Hank Green of the Vlog Brothers. And John Green's the one who writes, like, Fault in Our Stars, Paper Town, is that big writer. They're the two brothers who own that. Well, I let me ask you. I, I've heard a song, and my kids love it. I, I love it, too. Um, maybe this isn't a good example of Troc. I don't know. It, it, Kesha had her song, you know, TikTok, whatever those, you know. And mm-hmm. someone did a Doctor Who version of it. And it's all about Doctor Who and River Song's going to kill the Doctor. And all that. Would that be that? Would that qualify as truck, or does it have to be original uh, and music in words? I, I think it all does because Drake and the Malfoys has a song called "99 Death Eater," <laughs> and it's based on uh, "99 Red Balloons." Oh, I mean, <laughs> no, it's so amazing. It's so great. But no, he's uh, a Drake and the Malfoys. <laughs> 
Oh man, Drake and the Malfoys, the Moaning Myrtles, Justin Fitch Fletchley and the Sugar Quills, the Ramus Lupins, Ministry of Magic. Like, I can send you a list of amazing wizard rock songs. And the thing no, is. No, no, no. What I want is a CD of you just reading the band names to me and some of their songs. <laughs> and I will just, I'll just go to sleep listening to that. It'll be like the most peaceful sleep I've ever had. That is hysterical. <laughs> I don't mean it in a bad way. I'm not making fun of them. I just, like, someone to name their band Dr- Draco and the Malfoys is fucking brilliant. I mean, that is <laughs> astonishingly hilarious and brilliant. It's Hats clever. off to those guys. Very I mean, that's clever. the kind of stuff that's cracking me up. See, Swish and Flick are awesome because they're actually, <laughs> they're going to scar their children um, because they're actually this really cute married couple. And um, they're, they're, like, super nice. If you actually ever meet Swish and Flick in real life, they're really nice quiet people but the moment they get on stage it's like a total 180 and they're like the bad girl uh, she plays like the bad girl version of Draco Malfoy's girlfriend and she there's always one point where she flashes her Draco Malfoy panties to the stage and she, it's all it's on the internet and she's like you know one day I'm gonna scar my poor daughter <laughs> yeah <laughs> but I, I mean yeah but I mean they are the dirtiest song oh my god like oh what's the name of that song I think it's called something like I'm a Malfoy bitch it is the dirtiest song ever. There's a part where she says, fuck, fuck Potter, I'm rich, motherfucker. Fuck Potter, I I got the switch, motherfucker. You're on your knees, motherfucker, so suck me off, motherfucker. Like, it's like this, like, really raunchy, like, like Harry Potter song. It's... <laughs> hey, hey, Sean, we Ex- might need the explicit tag Ex- today. Explicit it's tag. <laughs> Checking that right Just now. Just a bit. <laughs> fuck Potter, I'm rich, motherfucker. Fuck, I got the stitch, motherfucker. Okay. <laughs> We've lost anyway, hope. Anyway, truck. So, but the All last right, one I, I wanted, the last I one I wanted, out truck, no doubt about it. I can actually send you Chameleon Circuit's first album. I have it, and I have it in uh, MP3, so I can send it to you. Okay. Um, but the last thing I wanted to point out, um, their second video, "The Doctor Is Dying," off their second album, was released in November 2013, and it was part of BBC America and the Nerdist Doctor Who Week. And it was an event that took place on YouTube in the week building up to the 50th anniversary, uh, 50th anniversary special. And the band was also heavily featured on the Story of Truck radio episode on BBC One on November 25th. And so, um, and on, um, oh, that's, a very, that's something else. So they do have two albums out. And while some of the other bands, which is kind of sad, aren't as big as, um, uh, aren't as big as Chameleon Circuit, it does help give other bands other exposure. And other exposure, and if you want to check out some of their stuff, they're on dftba.com, and you can look up Chameleon Circuit, and you have both of their albums on there. And I still need to get their second album. I really want it. Awesome. All right, you, don't take a breath because you're still up. You started. Oh, someone's doing printed word. <laughs> oh, I just this was just more like a mention about like how much Doctor Who has grown over the time. I just wanted to make two quick little mentions that for the first time ever in 2012, Doctor Who was on TV Guide for the first time. And then in 2013, it was on the cover of Entertainment Weekly for the first time. And so I just thought that was so amazing that, you know, it's grown so much to where it's on these two very prominent U.S. magazines, especially Entertainment Weekly. That's like the pinnacle magazine of entertainment. That you got voted there, too, didn't it? Didn't they have like a yep. contest, like pick of like a couple different fandoms who gets this cover? And it was Doctor Who. Blew my mind. Couldn't believe it. Now, since we're talking about the printed word, I mean, I I told you guys before I'm a sucker for the Doctor Who books. And one of the things that they've tried to do recently is they've tried to get a lot of high-profile writers to write novels and short stories for Doctor Who. Uh, In fact, I just finished a uh, Alistair Reynolds book, which was very good, called The Harvest of Time. You've also got uh, short stories out there by Neil Gaiman. I can't say this guy's name. 
Eon Colfer, the guy who wrote all the Artemis Fowl books. Yeah. Um, you've got full-length novels by Michael Moorcock, Dan Abnett, Stephen Baxter. So they're they're really investing in getting big-name authors to try and attract people to Doctor Who novels right now. So there's there's a lot of movement in the printed word area. And, like, this is kind of a side note, not quite with that, but also I think it's really prominent that Neil Gaiman has um, written a few episodes as well. He did write one good episode, didn't he? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Oh, he let's wrote not, two. He wrote two episodes, folks. Only one of them was good. Let's not diss the Cybermen one. That was not that. Which one did, was it? It was the the what the something in silver. Nightmare, oh. in silver. Nightmare in silver, and then he did the Doctor's Wife. You know yeah, that he did was the, the Doctor's Wife was, was brilliant. Okay. Yes. You know that one I was, was okay. Crying. It wasn't my favorite, but I actually liked that one more than uh, the most majority of Clara's first season. Like I just cannot get into Clara at all. Okay. You know, you know what did it for me? All right, we'll talk about that for a split second. We got a couple minutes left here. Um, I was the same way. All I could see when I, besides an incredibly gorgeous actress, uh, when I looked at her, was an actress trying to play a part. That's all I saw for the first several appearances of her. I, I, ne- I did not get into her character at all. And somewhere around, um, what was the? God, all the episodes are something of the Doctor. You know, there's the name of the Doctor, time of the Doctor. Uh, the comfy pillow of the doctor. I don't know what the, the 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 one where he went to Trenzalore, um, the first time. Oh, that was name of the doctor. Not not the one where Matt Smith regenerated though. Is it? No, no that was name of the doctor. Okay, because day of the doctor was the last one. Okay, thank you. All right, that one that you just named the, of the doctor one was the first time I saw Clara actually as a companion and not as the actress trying to play a companion. See, me was the the, the uh, Matt Smith's last episode was the first time I really saw her as a companion. Because just to me, the entire story arc, she was a Mary Sue. Like, she was the very definition of what a Mary Sue is. Mm. And I just could not look past it. And mine was just the actress. I couldn't, I just couldn't accept her in the role. But in that one where she just started, I felt like she was genuinely there for the Doctor and was trying to help him. And I felt like she was part of the story and not just some girl along for the ride. And and that's when it all clicked for me. And from then on, I've been fine with her. It's very strange because up to that point, I couldn't stand her. I kept saying like, ah, I don't like this companion, blah, 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 blah. But it, it all clicked from there. Like the 15th anniversary, I love her in that. I think she's fantastic. Um, that final one, what would you say? Uh, whatever the, the final one. The final one was Day Yeah. The final one was Day of. Name yeah, up they all run up. together. They really do. Name um, up, then time up, then day up. She was fine in that one. I didn't like the episode itself, but I thought she was very good in that one too. So I'm I'm finally on the Clara drain, but it took almost till the very end of the season to finally get there. Yeah, and my problem with cars, I just really like the puns so much, I didn't want to lose them. <laughs> I know, I know. So, um, the last thing I kind of wanted to talk about was just how the internet has influenced the fandom. And um, you guys can weigh on, on some of these as well. But the first one I wanted to really tackle was Tumblr. Like, that's where my blog is, that's where my hub is. Though, if you go to geekygirlexperience.com, I'm finishing my website right now, and there's a few, like, little spots here and there. So I'm about to have an mm-hmm. official website, guys. Woo! Congratulations. Thank you. And it's going to have a donation button, so if you like what you read, you should buy me a cup of coffee. <laughs> as soon as I get finished. <laughs> hey, man, I have to pay for my podcasting somehow. <laughs> so, um... But I mean, uh, what was I talking about? Tumblr. Um, I th- that I mentioned earlier about how there's all these crossover and like system sister kind of fandoms, and so just thinking, uh, if you go and Google Hulak, there's a great video, and I'm gonna pull it up right fast. There's a can, great. Can I, can I just share it for one second? Yeah. If you go to Tumblr, don't do it at work. 
Don't do it at work. <laughs> Whatever you do, even though if you look up something innocent, it's not going to end up that way. You're going to end up down a rabbit hole of porn. I promise. So just do it at home. You there. There is a few things you can go to. Like if you look up certain specific things, like if you look up specific episode titles or specific characters, it's not that bad. Um, and it just really depends on who you follow. Like I follow a lot of artists, and these artists like to draw butts, and I'm okay with that. Um, but they're also <laughs> my friends. Um, but like if you go and like Google Hulag, um, there's a great video on YouTube by John Smith, and it has over two million views, and it's about Sherlock meeting the Doctor, and it's incredibly well done. Like, it, it, it was featured on Entertainment Weekly, it was featured on The Mary Sue, uh, The Nerdist. I mean, like, this is a, a fantastic video that you definitely need to check out. But, I mean, the reason why I wanted to bring up Tumblr is I mentioned all these kind of crossover fandoms. And what I love about these crossover fandoms, it has this kind of extra boost of almost like a fresh breath of creativity. Um, we were talking about how the new fans come in and they bring in new theories. I love watching crossovers personally myself because I love seeing these characters who would never interact in 12 million years interact. So I love seeing Sherlock and Tennant's Doctor together. Or I love Super Hulock and seeing like Gene Winchester toe off with Captain Jack Hartness. And then my, my absolute favorite is Super Who Avengers Lock. So you have the Supernatural characters, the Doctor Who characters, the Sherlock characters, and they're all towing off against Loki and joining the Avengers. And they're all bringing these kind of skill sets and there's also gosh there's also like cabin hulock where it's like cabin pressure meets doctor who meets sherlock and it's just a really great i love crossovers because it's just this kind of juice of individuality and it, it's really fun to see these characters like sherlock holmes whose brain would actually probably implode if he ever saw the tardis um but to see him and reading this fan fiction about how he would adjust meeting and this kind of concept that he probably never thought about because he didn't think the solar system was even real. So, <laughs> it, it it is worth noting that that sites like Tumblr and stuff have taken fan, uh, fanfic to a whole new level because it's not just about writing stories anymore. You can do it with a couple of animated gifs. And, and then you have people like Reaper Sun who are professional comic book artists, and you have these professional comic book artists doing these amazing artworks. So I will say, if you go see Reaper Sun stuff, do not do it at work. There you go. There you go. Yeah, I saw that one with Sherlock and the Doctor. I mean, the, the CGI in that thing was amazing. It was I know. Really, really well done. I just posted a link for you, Sean, in the thing for the Hulock video. Okay, Ruby. Um, but, yeah, I absolutely love crossovers. I mean, I love seeing uh, the Doctor joking about Loki invading the world, and he's just like, oh, this is nothing compared to Daleks. <laughs> it's, so. uh, the, the crossover stuff's been around a long time, um, believe it or not. Like, I remember back in, you know, you were talking about the BBS days, Sean. I mean, mine was, again, was just the text-based only internet surfing. I remember stumbling across, like, you know, X-Files and Star Trek fanfic. Oh yes. So crossover stuff. So I mean, the stuff—it's—it's it's amazing how long this has been going on. I wonder if our, you know, if our parents, you know, stumbled across stories people wrote about—I don't know—Wizard of Oz and Gone with the Wind teaming up. But it's—it's it's not a new idea. But it's just interesting to see how how technology has made it a lot easier for people to produce the stuff they want to. Yeah, it's been—it's been more. It probably hasn't been. It's probably not a new thing. But the technology and people's ability to. Uh, make animated gifts and stuff like that for it has definitely expanded the um, quality of it. I'm putting quotes around the word quality. You know, I'm certain some of the stuff out there is really good, but then some of the stuff out there was probably that sort of slash fictiony stuff, which you know you can't read at work. 
Ever. <laughs> you you want to know something that will actually absolutely destroy your brain? Oh, please go ahead. If you go to fanfiction.net, there's fanfiction for the Bible. Oh, jeez. Oh, jeez. I know, I was just, I, when I saw that, I was just like, oh, my God. I'm like, why am I clicking on this? I'm so curious, but I don't want to know. Oh, my God, what is Jesus doing? Oh, oh no. <sighs> I, I thought I had explored fanfic.net pretty thoroughly and been astonished at, you know, Fantasy Island and Magnum P.I. fanfic, but you just, that takes the cake. Wow. I, I, the, yeah, Bible fanfiction just completely destroyed me. But, I mean, I to reel us back in, I think also it's kind <laughs> of the popularity of the show is why we see a lot more websites like Bleeding Cool and the Mary Sue and the Nerdist writing more about Doctor Who and seeing it in Entertainment Weekly. It's because the fandom and the popularity of the show has grown so much, and I kind of feel like it's becoming more accepted. Kind of like that kind of Star Wars, Star Trek level, you know? It's totally okay to talk about Doctor Who now. It's not in the closet anymore. And especially with the influences of social media like doctor who has doctor who has its own facebook twitter tumblr youtube like it has all these all these technological bases it has its own pinterest it has its own vine like it's it's amazing that how the show has really surged forward and i think a lot of it is because of the internet like it would have done well without the internet just being on bbc but if it wasn't for the internet it probably wouldn't have done as well because it's exposing people to the show and, I mean, it's it's stuff like, you know, like, um, what's that show I wanted to watch? Like, Sleepy Hollow. I wasn't really, I didn't really kind of was interested too much beforehand, but then I kept seeing it on the internet, and I was like, oh my god, this show looks amazing. And then I watched Sleepy Hollow, and it is amazing. It's so good. Um, but, like, the, I think Doctor Who's doing the same thing, you know, like, people have been saying, like, they have seen things from Doctor Who, and they didn't really know what's going on, and they checked it out, and now they're fans. So the internet has really helped this show become what it is today. Yep. Oh yeah. Without well, and, a doubt. And then that, and that's always a good thing because I think you know, with any sci-fi genre, with any genre show, you know, if people get interested in it and go check out more stuff about it and become fan, that's how we get new fans. Because mm. let's face it, you know, people like Shag and I, old fans we're not going to be around anymore. And if Doctor Who wants to keep on going, they're going to have to get new fans and they're going to have to get in the way that's modern. And, you know, I hate to say it, it's hip and the kids like to do like those hula hoops and stuff like that. So, <laughs> so, so we've, you know, I think the internet is an uh, integral part of uh, helping, you know, grow the fandom, especially it's been seen very well in the, uh, in the workings of Doctor Who. I mean, maybe it's me as just as a parent or what it is, but, I am perfectly happy to hand the reins of the big fish in the small pond Doctor Who fan to the next generation. As long as they let me sit around and swim around in the pool and still watch the show, I am perfectly happy to let the rest of the world take it and, and be the big diehard Doctor Who fans. I think it's awesome. I want them to. I want Doctor Who to have a diehard fan base. I want the folks to just sit there and talk about it and think about it and do be creative around it. I want that to keep going, and I think it's lovely that it's still going. And 50 years now, the show's going, and, you know, who knows, with the format, as long as BBC doesn't screw it up and have a couple of really bad seasons, the show could keep going for another 20 years. I and think I hope so. And I hope they have that chance to. I really do. And with that, you know, um, I'm probably going to go climb back in my closet and get my, my VCR tape and watch War Games. So. <laughs> not, the, yeah. not, not the Matthew Broderick movie, but the pa- Patrick Trotton episode. <laughs> Yeah, I don't really have anything else either, guys. I mean, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm so happy that I've been able to talk about 
just fandom in general. And if you guys want to, I, I'll grab a nice, I'll grab a girl and talk about Ship Wars at some point. <laughs> yeah, <that's... laughs> because that, like, that's just like that. There's like little in, like intricate parts of fandoms and stuff like that too, like analyzing like fan fiction and different character types and threesomes and. Because, oh my god, I love Jack Yonto and Doctor Number 10. That's my favorite threesome. Um, so are we, I, just talking, are we just talking slut? We're off the rails here. Let's, <laughs> never mind. Good night, folks. Good night. Good night, everyone. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Slash <laughs> fiction. <laughs> we were totally going to slash fiction and oh, I had to stop no. that train. When, when, we, when we hit threesomes, I was like, oh, dear, this is going to sponsor an episode of this or any other of your favorite two true freaks affiliated shows simply click the paypal link on our website donate any amount at all tell us which show you're choosing and what message if any you'd like us to read on your behalf and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode with your message read in the show's opener it's that easy and there is no minimum donation be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2TrueFreaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the 2TrueFreaks at the same time. Welcome to Amazon. I love you. <laughs> Visit our brand new website at 2TrueFreaks.com. 2TrueFreaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. Join our forum at ForumForGeeks.com, where you can discuss all of the shows on our feed with us and your fellow listeners. You can find 2TrueFreaks on Facebook. Just search for 2TrueFreaks. And hey, you can friend me, Scott Gardner, on Facebook, too. My name is spelled S-C-O-T-T-G-A-R-D-N-E-R. You can friend me on Facebook, too, if you can find me. Now available, Two True Freaks t-shirts. See our website for details. Two True Freaks is a very proud member of the Comics Podcast Network. You can check that out at www.comicspodcast.com, where you can hear our new episodes when we put them up. We are also members of the League of Comic Book Podcasts. For more information, 
visit comicbooknoise.com slash league. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? Thanks for listening. And join us every Monday for new episodes of Two Two True True Freaks. Just, can you guys see it? It's there. Yeah, I see. I see it. But I don't know that it's ringing. Is, is this what you ran into, Sean? Okay. Yeah. Hold on. All right. I'm calling it right now. Okay. It might be I just like a... I guess it's not hosting. I have to call it. So. Oh. Mm. Maybe it's just like a. It's weird. There's no ringing. There's no anything. No, I'm not hearing anything either. Oh. Hello? Hello? Hi, who is this? Who's this? Is this Chris? Who's this? Is this Chris? Uh, it is Chris Honeywell. <laughs> it's Hope. It's, it's Hope and Sean. It's <laughs> Depends on who's asking. Oh, dear God. What have I walked into? <laughs> We're drunk we- dialing the Who the Who True Freaks are drunk dialing Chris Honeywell. <laughs> We were, we were looking on the website and we saw the old cop lure line and we decided to see if it was still active. So, yeah, you bastard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Terribly sorry to wake you. <laughs> I'm not. Oh, I was I was um, I was at the computer. OK, I'm just not I'm just not going to get an, un, an unknown name. Somebody trying to pin down my name. Come on, man. Well, it's true. <laughs> it's true. Oh yeah, we're like the even especially when it's a female voice trying to you know the old honey trap. (laughs) Oh, he'll he'll say his name. He'll say his name. (laughs) Next thing I know, the helicopters are coming. Yeah, (laughs) they're on their way, sir.